You are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lisa O'Brien, and I'm joined today by the charming, wonderful, and talented Roberta Glass of the Roberta Glass True Crime Report, who graciously agreed to sit in for Kyle, who's traveling today. This is episode 13, State of New York versus Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. and the Amityville Horror at 112 Ocean Avenue. We'll talk about the murders of the DeFeo family, DeFeo Jr.'s changing stories, his trial and conviction, and the claims made by George and Kathy Lutz, who bought the house in December 1975, which resulted in the book The Amityville Horror by author Jay Anson. We'll also talk about the controversy surrounding the Lutz's claims and the allegations by DeFeo's trial lawyer, who claimed the whole thing was hatched over multiple bottles of wine with the Lutzes. And good afternoon, Roberta. Thank you again for uh, sitting in for Kyle with me today. Roberta? Oh, Hi, thank you. I just lost sound. I'm sorry, Lisa. Oh, that's you just, okay. The sound just went out. I'm sorry. Thank you for having me. So... And this is when I, when I, I heard from Kyle yesterday um, and I thought, well, this case is from New York. So who I'm going to, who's, who am I going to call? Roberta Glass. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This whole case is really notorious in the whole tri-state area. So New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania mm-hmm. the sort of border. You just could not grow up the time that I grew up without knowing about this, reading the book, seeing the movies. It's really a sensational story in in a way that I don't think there, it has some kind of equal or counterpart. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And it's funny because when I was a, a teenager, I read all the books uh, and I did believe the story. But then as I got older and I saw more, uh, more about it, I started having a little bit of skepticism, and now I'm on the other side of the fence. So, but yeah, we'll get into I, that as we go. <laughs> so. It's amazing. It's a it's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Incredible story. Yeah, twisted story as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we could start. Uh, of course, it does uh, stem from a murder case. And the victims in that case were Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr. He was born November 16, 1930 in Brooklyn, Kings County, New York. His parents were Rocco Anthony DeFeo, who died in 1983, and Antoinette Annette Bianco, who died in 84. He had a great uncle, Peter DeFeo, 
who was part of Lu Luciano and uh, Genovese crime families. However, Ronald Jr. Ronald Sr. had no ties, nor does it appear that Rocco did either. Uh, Ronald was a service manager at his father-in-law's uh, Buick dealership, was, which was Briganti Carl Buick dealership in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he married Louise Marie Briganti on April 28, 1951. Their oldest, Butch, was born in September of 1951. So uh, he was already a bun in the oven when they got married. Uh, then they had uh, four other children, Dawn, who was born in 1956, Allison, born in 1961, Mark, born in 1962, and John Matthew, born in 1965. Uh, he was shot in the back twice with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. The next victim is Louise Marie Borgonti DeFeo. She was born November 3rd, 1931, also in Brooklyn, Kings County, New York. She was the daughter of Michael John Briganti Sr., who died in 1991, and Angelina Maria Calabresi Briganti, who died in 2002. She had one brother, Michael John Briganti Jr., and he died in 2020. She was a housewife, married Ronald Sr. in April 1951, and uh, same children. I'm not going to read the children again. Uh, she also died of two gunshot wounds in the back and neck. And then the children were Dawn Teresa DeFeo. Uh, she was born July 29th, 1956, Brooklyn, Kings County, New York. The family apparently lived in an apartment in Brooklyn uh, for a very long time, which I cannot imagine with four kids. Yeah, we think <laughs> of Long Island now as, as really so wealthy, but in the 70s, when people were still by being able to buy houses, it's really rare that middle-class people buy houses as much as they did back then. Mm -hmm. They were living in Long Island because it was an affordable alternative to right. living in the city. You could raise your kids out there. They could have a little room. They could ride their bikes. It was a little bit, you had a, the best mm -hmm. of the both, both worlds. You could work in someplace like Brooklyn, which is huge and there's still many people in Brooklyn who feel like they should have never joined into, <laughs> they should have kept as a separate city from Manhattan, mm -hmm. but it's huge. Brooklyn is enormous. Yeah. Uh, Dawn so, was a high school senior. Yeah. and no, oh, That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to bring us to the, and, the, I'm just trying to give you an idea yeah. that there was, oh, a, no. it was a much more of a mixed kind of middle-class working class crowd. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, mm -hmm where this kind of took place in the seventies, not the hoity toity Hamptons or some other kind yeah. of place we think of as yeah. in Long Island. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you. All right, so, uh, <laughs> Dawn was a high school senior. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, in fact had just turned 18 July of 1974. Um, she probably would have been graduating in 1975. Um, and all indications are she was popular. She had friends she was doing well in school, um, and uh, she was also killed with a gunshot wound uh, to the head. The next victim is Allison Louise DeFeo. She was born August 16, 1961, in Brooklyn, Kings County. Um, her parents and siblings are the same as those for 
uh, Don, uh, Butch, Alice, uh, Butch, Don, Mark, and John Matthew. She was in middle or junior high school, uh, depending on how New York names their their schools. She would have been about ninth grade because she was thirteen um, at the time. She also died of a gunshot wound to the head or uh, face. Next victim, Mark Gregory DeFeo. He was born September 4th, 1962. He was in also middle junior high school. He would have been 12. Uh, he was a, uh, like Dawn, Allison was good in school, popular, had friends. Uh, Mark was good in school, popular, and apparently quite the athlete. Uh, and at the time of the murders, he had a football injury to his back, which had limited his mobility to either a wheelchair or crutches. Uh, he died of a gunshot wound to the back. And then the last victim is John Matthew DeFeo. He was born October 24th, 1965. Uh, he was born in Brooklyn, Kings County after his parents had moved to Amityville. Um he was in elementary or middle school and he would have been nine years old at the time. He also died of a gunshot wound in the back. The perpetrator was Ronald Joseph Butch DeFeo Jr. He was born September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, Kings County. He was the oldest child of Ronald and Louise DeFeo. Uh, he was a high school dropout. He'd been expelled, although the reasons for that were uh, unclear. He was a gopher or errand boy for Bugatti Carl Buick in Brooklyn, New York. That was his grandfather's Buick dealership. Um, there are claims that, that it had some tie to the mob or mafia, but I mean, a car dealership, even in the 1970s, was a lucrative uh means of employment without criminal activity. Uh, they had a service department, so they did service on vehicles. There have been sources that claim Butch was a mechanic, but I never found anything official that identified him as anything more like a gopher errand boy. He probably washed cars, detailed cars, ran errands for the dealership, etc., um, and he, he was the black is, sheep of the family, but, you know, the was. other kids did well in school and he dropped, he was expelled he, or dropped expelled out. Expelled or dropped out. And um, he had drug and alcohol problems uh, and apparently from a very young age. Now, there is some contemporaneous sources who say that his relationship with Ronald Sr. was very volatile and that Ronald Sr., perhaps when he was a child, was abusive. Um, although by standards of the 1960s and 70s, it was probably not seen right. as anything mm -hmm. beyond normal, whereas now we recognize it as abuse. Um, a very different time. No, no seatbelts and cars mm -hmm. <laughs> just coming and in, I think, it, you know, or, or weren't weren't mandated. No car seats. I, I hate played to say on this. concrete. <laughs> I hate to say this, but based on what I saw of Ronald as an adult, if he was halfway like that as a child, 
his father probably didn't beat him enough. <laughs> he's he's the most unlikable, unlikable character. Oh my god! And yet, a we can talk about it, but a, yeah, he just can't finesse. He goes from one. He just lies with such mm -hmm. ease and, and blames. not well. Mm -hmm. Not well, because it, half of it doesn't make a damn bit of sense. And we'll get no. into that a little bit, a little bit later. So um, he was a drug addict. He also was diagnosed prior to his trial with antisocial personality disorder. Um, he was married apparently uh, three times. Excuse me, Lisa. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, antisocial personality disorder um, and psychopathy are kind of hand in hand. Um, he, he was a sociopath, put it that Most way. Definitely. Most definitely. Um, he was allegedly married to Geraldine Gates. He tried to claim they were married in 1973 uh, at one time uh, because it would benefit him to have been married to her and living with her and not at home with his parents. But every stitch of information from 1974 completely refuted those claims. Uh, he did actually marry her in prison in 1989. They divorced in 1993. He married Barbara Pucco in 1994. They divorced in 1999. And then he married a woman named Nissa Burkhalter in 2012. They divorced in 2015. And I have a feeling that each of those women were not getting him out of prison and ceased to be of any use to him. Exactly. Exactly. And so the divorce uh, you know or they weren't giving him enough money etc um yeah he had prior crimes he had a conviction for theft of an outboard motor i had found something about an arson of a boat to try and cover it was a boat his family had given him, his parents had given him because those dumbasses spoiled the boy um very, and he was trying spoiled. to cover up something he'd done uh, but he was never charged or convicted with it. And then there was also a staged robbery of the car dealership of either a payroll or a bank deposit on November 1st, 1974. And I, to this day, believe that this was the come to Jesus moment for Ronald Sr. Who yeah. decided to kick Ron Jr. out. He was 23. So we'll 23. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 23 living at home and his parents providing him a job and, and he not would only get paid if even if he didn't go. So yeah, I mean, why go? So he just uh, seems Ronald, like so spoiled. Ronald Jr. died on March 12th, 2021 in Albany, Albany County, New York. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. Okay. So the crime, uh, November 13th, 1974, the victims, again, were Ronald Sr., Louise, Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew. Uh, the crime occurred at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, and that was in Suffolk County. Um, the family moved to the house, which was a Dutch colonial, in, uh, in June of 1965. Uh, they wanted to move the uh, four children from their apartment in Brooklyn. And at the time they moved, uh, Louise was expecting John Matthew, the fifth child. Uh, he joined the family on no October 24th, 1965. Um, at the time, or at some time after they had moved into the house, 
uh, Ron Sr. apparently christened the property High Hopes. Ron Sr. was a service manager at his father-in-law's Buick dealership in Brooklyn, where there, while there's some speculation about Ron's salary and there are libelous accusations of, about his honesty, including claims that he was stealing from his employer, the Rileys, who, from whom they bought the property, had only paid $35,000 for it in 1960. Uh, so that makes it unlikely that their asking price for the house, given that they were going through a divorce, was going to be what 1970s or late 1970s, early 1980s property prices became in New York. Right. What what year did property prices start going through the roof? Do you remember? Around then, exactly yeah. around then is my understanding. Yeah. So late 70s, early 80s. So in 1965, it's more likely than not the Rileys wanted to get back any equity they had and they wanted to pay off any mortgage they had and they maybe wanted to make a small profit. But again, they're going through a divorce. They may have been right. happy just to break even. Exactly. Um, and there are claims about Ron Sr. stealing from the dealership, but those claims were often made by Ron Jr. Butch. I'm going to call him Butch or his advocates. And so mm -hmm. I would say BS. Um, there's no evidence that Ron Sr. was ever tied to anybody in the mafia other than his uncle. Um, he was, nor was Michael Briganti. I mean, DeFeo liked to claim that kind of shit, but there's no proof of it. And none of that was developed during the murder investigation. Right. Um, for nine years, the family lived relatively peacefully in the house, except for Butch, who was the black sheep. He wasn't a good student. He wasn't popular in school or with his peers. He was apparently bullied and picked on. Um, Don, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew were all good students and all good kids, and they had friends and interests outside the home. Neighbors described the family as a very loving and close one. Butch alleges that Ron Sr. was abusive to Louise and the children, but he's the only one making those claims. Ron Sr. was probably raised by parents who believed in spare the rod, spoil the child, and he likely felt the same about his troubled and troublemaking eldest son. Butch also displayed violence toward his sibling and peers, which troubled his parents enough at one point that they turned to a psychiatrist. Butch was passive aggressive with the doctor, who was consequently unable to help him because true to a sociopath, the problem is not him, it's them. Right. <laughs> they take um, no responsibility at all. It's everyone else's fault. And they they see it as a game. And there's actually one study that showed that that they just get more manipulative, more psychopathic in therapy. It's like a game to them and they learn how to manipulate people more. See the Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> I th it talks about that, that study and sort of shows how, how that can happen. Yeah. So Butch turned to drugs and alcohol using LSD, heroin and amphetamines. He was expelled from high school at age 17 and by 18 went to work at the dealership with Ron Sr., between his salary and the allowance his father gave him, Butch made a good leave, living for an eight year, 18 year old 
still living at home with his parents who paid for anything and everything he wanted. He had a car. He had a boat. He had clothes. He had <laughs> rifles and weapons, which was a huge mistake on their part. Um, Butch was also paid whether he worked part of the day or not at all. Not satisfied, Butch supplemented his income with thefts. Um, in September 1973, Butch and a friend stole an outboard motor from the town dock using Butch's boat in the theft. On December 14, 1973, he was convicted of petty larceny and sentenced to one year's probation. In April of 1974, a girlfriend reported him for using drugs and he was placed on a special narcotics probation. Um, which also may have been uh, a factor in his decision to slaughter his entire family. He may have been getting ready to go to jail. Butch was also violent inside and outside of the home. He pointed a rifle at a longtime friend while the two were out hunting. Later, he asked a friend why he'd left the hunting trip so soon. I'm sorry. During, this out. Yeah. During a fight between his parents. He pointed a 12-gauge shotgun at his father's head, threatening to kill him. When Butch pulled the trigger, the gun failed to fire, which saved Ron Sr.'s life. And Ron Sr. apparently found Jesus on that day. <laughs> and um, I think Ron Sr. also started recognizing that Butch was not right. Mm -hmm. And that his he and his family were in danger. Mm. On November 1st, yeah. That really tipped it all off. I mean, that the whole robbery, that's what the whole robbery of the or, or the fake robbery that he set up at the and it, dealership it was, really start, sprung this all off, sprung right. him killing his entire family all off. And it was Butch's failure to cooperate with the police. If this were really a robbery, why wouldn't he cooperate? Exactly. And um, and and more likely than not, Ron Senior. I can only speculate, but Ron Senior was probably thinking, "What is, what is his father-in-law who didn't really like him too much when he and Louise got married? What is he going to think? Is he going to think I was in on it? Hmm. Is the little shit going to tell him I was in on it? Because Butch is claiming, you know, Butch claimed for many years that Ron was skimming from the dealership, even though there's never been any any proof of that. And he never made those claims in 1974. Um, so this was like a, this was like a really just like a bad they were taking the deposit, which Ron Sr. actually, whoever sent them off with the deposit Ron Sr. got mad at that person. Like, why would you do that, you idiot? <laughs> um, they had $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks. They disappeared for two hours and then came back and claimed that they were robbed at gunpoint while stopped at a red light on their way to the bank. And I seem to recall at one time that they were somewhere in Coney Island or somewhere near Coney Island. Uh, which That's I don't know. Way geography out, way in out in Brooklyn. Yeah, way out, way out by the water in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, when police sought an explanation of the two hour gap between the time they left and the time they returned after being robbed, Butch <laughs> didn't have an explanation. And so when he couldn't come up with a lie fast enough, he became belligerent. And that actually led Ron Sr. to step in and ask police to take it easy on him. 
By mid-November, Butch's failure to cooperate with investigators had angered Ron Sr. When Butch refused to go to the police station to look at mud shots in an effort to identify the alleged robber, Ron Sr. confronted Butch at work. In response, Butch threatened to kill him. Uh, again, nice. I really think that that was the final straw for Ron Sr. I think he finally started to see through Butch and Butch's lies. And I also think that he saw this as a final betrayal and thought, why am I doing all these things for this kid who just keeps stabbing me in the back? And I yeah. think it may have led to him saying, okay, find someplace else to live. You're not going to live here anymore. Right. This is, you know, very similar to the Menendez brothers who mm -hmm. were adults living in their father's, you know, their parents' house and they were stealing and getting in trouble with the law and and they were very impatient about getting their inher inheritance and many people think that DeFeo killed for the inheritance. Yes. And I I believe that I, I believe that that was his motive as well. In addition to just being antisocial and just pure hatred for everybody, you know, because oh, yeah. his siblings were everything he wasn't. His siblings had friends. They did well in school. They were popular. Yep. Mark was a good athlete. Um, these yep. are all things that Butch failed miserably at. He's a total failure and he's, and he continued. That was a pattern, mm -hmm. even as a, as a convict, he failed every, you know, he just, every lie was terrible lie that failed legally, as you mm -hmm. pointed, <laughs> pointed out before we began recording. I mean, just one, one ridiculous lie after the other. And you would think that a more rational person would think, oh, I have to start thinking out my lies a little bit better. Let me strategize. No, they're just one ridiculous, convenient lie after the next thrown out, rejected, that gets yeah. him nowhere. And you will, I think the thing that I observed in the multiple interviews that I watched of him were he was not smart, mm -mm. not even, not even sometimes people who don't have the book smarts have a craftiness mm -hmm. and he didn't even have that. It was just and like whatever comes out of his mouth, there's no thinking it through. And also there's a huge age difference between the mother and the father. So the mother's born in, there's a 21 year age difference. So, so I, what I've observed about. No, the mother and father were a year apart. No, did I read that wrong? Yeah. Uh, Louise 51, was born I read 31 51. and, and I read Ronald 51. Was born. Oh, read no, no, 51. that's, that's. Then that's my error. Ron Jr. was born in 51. And Ron Jr. was literally a bastard because his mother was pregnant with him outside okay. of wedlock. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was that's like, okay. there's a 21 year age difference. That's no, what I read. No, no, no. Okay. No, okay. the mother Obviously. and father were uh, were contemporaries. Um, so and, you know, Louise theory. was actually a beautiful woman. <laughs> she could have modeled and that she apparently had some tie with Mel Torme. But there's not a lot of information about her. And apparently she and Ron Sr. started going out and had a brief courtship. And then she was pregnant and they got married. 
her parents wouldn't have anything to do with them because they didn't approve of Ron Sr. And then when Butch was born, then the, her parents kind of softened mm -hmm. and and welcomed the first grandchild and Ron into the fold. Um, and, you know, Ron, the father-in-law, did give him a job. So after and, he was given the um, ride act to get out of, get at, move out of the house, he just started preparing to for this for this murder well, by buying think, that gun. Is that what you think happened? Well, no, he was a gun collector and he was a gun nut, so he had a lot of guns. He had recently acquired a thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle, but not necessarily specifically for this. Uh, but he did stay home with alleged stomach trouble on November 12th, 1974. He was home all day. On the night of November 12th, 1974, most of his family went to bed and they were in bed by 10 p.m. But Butch stayed home from work that day, sat in his room waiting and planning. Uh, he chose the 35 caliber Marlin rifle that he'd recently bought. At 3 a.m. on the morning of November 13, 1974, he moved through the house, starting in his parents' room. He shot each of his parents twice, uh, his father in the back, his mother in uh, back or neck. Uh, investigators believe that Louise was awakened when Ron Sr. was shot, but she only had time to lift her head slightly before being shot herself. Next, Butch went to the rooms shared by his brothers, Mark and John Matthew. He shot each of them once in the back. Like her mother, investigators believe that Allison stirred and looked up at Butch as he entered her room. He shot her in the face. Finally, Butch returned to the third floor and shot his sister, Dawn, in the head. It took Butch only 15 minutes to annihilate his family. The only noise reported by neighbors in the aftermath was the sound of the DeFeo family dog Shaggy barking during the time between 3 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. And that's one of the things that has been raised to say more than one person must have done this is that nobody heard gunshots. Hmm. And the Marlin is a very loud weapon. And so they should have heard, heard gunshots. Well, it's, it's November... It was mild temperatures, but the temperatures were in the 50s. So the windows of the house are going to be closed. And the heater is probably going to be running. Except that some of you New Yorkers like polar bears and you don't turn the heater on until it's 30 degrees. Right. <laughs> but, you know, then they're all on their stomachs. So it, it's just, just, is it, did he come into the room and say, get, I, I don't think so. I, it's just that no, they were I, all. I think that they slept on their stomachs. Right. Um, and it's three o'clock in the morning. So they're going to be in their deepest sleep. Right. Um, and that was a time when, when babies were put on their stomachs to sleep in their crib. Yeah. So it's a very sort of primal for them. A um, way now to there sleep. is, right. there is a claim that he did tell Mark and John to turn onto their stomachs. Hmm. But I mean, yeah, Mark and John Matthew to turn onto their stomachs. Um, but, you know, I think that they it's three o'clock in the morning. They're in their deepest sleep. And that may have been the 
the you know position they chose. Like I can't sleep on my stomach and I can't sleep on my back. I have to sleep on my side. But I'm in my 50s. Right. When I was a kid, I slept on my stomach a lot. Right, right. Because we were put on our stomachs as babies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But the other thing for me is that the windows would have been closed. Yes, the rifle's loud, but is it possible? One of my theories is the dog baying and howling, which is what the neighbors who heard him described, that might have masked the report of the gunshots. Yeah, and it's an older house. They're built, you know, it's harder to hear from room to room in a more insulated, older probably well-built so, house in my opinion i mean that is a loud gun there's and a, uh, all sorts of noises you hear in the country well they they're Cars, in a, they're whatever. in a yeah. village which is actually right. they're pretty close to their their neighbors right but there's another there's theory driving by right backfiring i don't know i'm just saying you're getting used to a certain amount of noise mm -hmm. as is it that is it that level noise that you're used to at night i don't know right but there's also another theory that I, I heard on one of the documentaries that I recently watched. And that is initially this was thought to potentially have been related to a mob hit targeting the family specifically. So would neighbors not say anything right. if they had heard gunshots? Would they maybe decide it's better for me just not to not to open my mouth at all. The, seven, the 70s was the heyday, one of the heydays for the mob. They, mm -hmm. you know, they were very powerful in that in this area at that time. So, although, like I said, I, I don't think that the DeFeo family or the Brigantes were actually <laughs> no. closely involved. Um, right. Butch then began the cover-up. He picked up the cartridges ejected from the rifle. He showered, trimmed his beard, and dressed for work. He placed the cartridges and his bloody clothing in a pill pillowcase. He put the pillowcase in his car and left for work, pausing on the way to throw the gun in the creek at the foot of Ocean Avenue. He pitched the pillowcase and other evidence into a storm drain in Brooklyn on his way to work, where he arrived by 6 a.m. Butch spent the day crafting his alibi. When his father failed to show up for work that morning, Butch called the house and let everyone know that no one had answered. He called home a few more times, then claimed he was bored and left work. He then spent the afternoon shopping with his girlfriend, who was named Sherry, not Geraldine. He called home a few times, remarking that all the cars were at the house, but no one answered the phone. He voiced suspicion that something had happened to his family, to his friend Bobby. Butch spent the late afternoon visiting friends and shooting up heroin. He claimed that he couldn't get into his house, and no one answered the door when he knocked. Again, he informed people that the cars were in the driveway. Now, this is where I'm wondering, did Ron Sr. take his keys and tell him you're out? Oh, good point. Very good point. Yeah, insightful. Uh, because now it could have been a lie that he couldn't get in the house. He didn't have keys. Um, and I think the story was something like, oh, my mom has my key ring. I had a key from, you know, some other place for my car, you know, typical butch. Um, typical. Stupid out, dumb right. Lie. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, at 6 p.m. 
you know, but and this doesn't stop him from sitting around using heroin, shopping with his girlfriend, and then going to Henry's bar. As you and would again, want to do with your when your whole family has just been murdered. Setting up right? his alibi. And you can't or or what actually, you know what? He, it, let's just take his view that he doesn't know anything. If you don't know anything, wouldn't you be a little bit more worried that yeah. you can't get in everybody's car is there, but you can't get into your house? No one's yeah. answering the door. Exactly. But he just wants to party all day and night and deal with it at 6 a.m. Um, at 6 p.m., he left Henry's bar, which was just a few blocks from the house on Ocean Avenue. He later claimed to have gotten in the house through a kitchen window. At 6.30 p.m., he burst back into the bar right. seeking help and telling patrons <laughs> that his mother and father had been shot. He doesn't know about the kids. He only knows his mother and father had been shot. Bobby and other patrons uh, accompanied Butch back to 112 Ocean Avenue. When they entered the house, they found that Allison and the boys had also been killed. Joey Yeswit called 911 to report the murders and summon police. Amityville, uh, Amityville Village police officer Kenneth Groguski was the first on the scene. By 7 p.m., he'd been joined by Suffolk County investigators who would take over the investigation. When initially questioned, Butch claimed that Louis Fellini, a mob hitman, man, killed his family. Butch claimed that his family was alive and well when he left for work at 4 a.m. Fellini's motive, according to Butch, was a disagreement he'd had with F Fellini a few years before. Which makes no sense. Why would Fellini kill your family and not you because you're the one who had the disagreement with him? Mm-hmm. Uh, Butch exactly. also implied that Fellini was aware of a stash of large sums of cash and gems kept by Ron Sr. As with all of Butch's stories, this one didn't make sense. Again, why would he kill the family and not Butch? Although I guess in Butch's mind, he was going to tell police that Fellini was framing him. Right, right, uh, right. Police right, right. did take initially take Butch seriously and he was put into protective custody. At 3 a.m., he went to sleep on a cot in a file room at the police station. Butch's claims about Fellini, their disagreement, and a stash of cash and, cash and gems were soon debunked. The claim that the family had fallen victim to a mob hit due to DeFeo and Briganti ties to the mafia was rejected because in those days, women and children were off limits. If Ron Sr. had been a target, he would have been lured from the house or killed while at work or between Brooklyn and Long Island. Physical evidence also refuted Butch's story. Police discovered an empty Marlin 35 caliber rifle box in Butch's closet and ammunition for a 35 caliber rifle in his room. This discovery was made before the autopsies that identified the type of weapon used to shoot each member of the family. Bobby also advised police that Butch was a gun freak. At 8.45 a.m., Butch was awakened and read his rights. Trying to appear cooperative and as nothing more than an innocent witness, Butch waived his right to counsel. Police began by confronting Butch with his claim that his family were murdered during the afternoon while he was at work or with Sherry. The victims were found in their beds wearing pajamas, which made the later time of death impossible. Butch backed down, admitting that the murders occurred between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. In an effort to tailor his new story to fit the evidence, Butch claimed that Fellini and an accomplice woke him up and made him watch as they shot each member of the family. 
Butch claimed Fellini used a revolver, likely because he was unaware that police had found the Marlin box and ammunition. Investigators had determined that Fellini was out of state on December on November 12th and November 13th, 1974. Finally, Butch dropped the lies and admitted that Fellini and the accomplice were never there. In his confession, Bush said, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. In his initial statements, he did not mention Dawn or his mother handling the gun, firing the rifle, or killing anyone during his statements on the day after the murders. He also did not claim to have heard voices or to have been compelled by unseen forces. And he was arrested by Suffolk County Police on November 14, 1974. He was indicted, although I don't know the exact date, and that was for six counts of second-degree murder. Initially, his grandfather, Michael Briganti, hired an attorney and an investigator to help him. Um, so that got turned into nefarious um, later. But, you know, he was trying to help him. I mean, maybe he believed his lies. I don't know. Uh, he was tried in the criminal term of the Supreme Court of Suffolk County, New York, in Riverhead. His, he had three judges during the course of his criminal case. Uh, initially, Honorable John Jones, who withdrew, um, or the case was transferred from him to another judge. That was Ernest Signorelli, who disqualified himself on September 15, 1975. And then the Honorable Thomas Stark took over and saw through the case, even through some of the post-conviction. Um, and Signorelli, apparently, William Weber, who had been appointed in July of 1975 to represent uh, Butch when um, Jacob Siegfried, the attorney hired by Bergranti, withdrew, um, he, apparently Weber was trying to help Signorelli be elected either as judge or to some other position and so mm. um, Gerard Sullivan initially didn't object but eventually raised an objection and that led to Judge Signorelli disqualifying himself jury selection began on October 6 1975 and concluded on October 10th, 9th, 1975, and people, there's a thing called a speedy trial right. And in most states, your speedy trial right means you have to go to trial nine to 10 months after your arrest, especially if you remain in under incarceration. So hmm. that is why a lot of criminal trials take place sooner than people would think they should have or than lay people think they should have. And in this case, you know, Butch was in Suffolk County Jail, uh, so his trial needed to take place. There was a trial setting in September, which was actually continued, but they don't, they're not going to continue it indefinitely. They're going to continue it for a few months, which is why jury selection began in October. His trial was held October 14th, to November 21st, 1975. And his defense was insanity, 
He claimed that he heard voices, that he didn't know what he was doing, and that Black Hands handed him the gun. He also claimed self-defense, alleging that he heard his family conspiring to kill him. Uh, He was convicted of six counts of second-degree murder on November 21st, 1975. And on December 4th, 1975, he was sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life to be served consecutively. That means when he served 25 years, he became eligible for parole on the first case. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have to serve another 25 years on the next case. Right. And in one of his, uh, one of his, his appeals, he said it was cruel and unusual. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now we of course have to talk about, 112 Ocean Avenue because it became a player in this story um, within a year of the murders. Um, The house was initially there are some claims that the house was built in 1927. So, but in January, on January 14, 1924, uh, Annie Ireland sold the land to John and Catherine Moynihan. Um, I've also read that the house was actually built in another location and moved to this land, which was a bigger, uh, a bigger plot of land than what they owned. Um, It was a Dutch colonial with three stories. Um, They didn't orient. The front door is not oriented at the street. It's to the side. And it backs up on the river, which, it, or, or, you know, the, the river, it's right on the water. Um, yeah. And again, in 1965, this would not have cost a lot of money. Right. But would We're have been 1965 money. Right. Exactly. Um, John Joseph Moynihan Jr. died on January 31st, 1939. His wife died on January 25th, 1960, and their daughter, Eileen, inherited the house in January of 1960. Um, She sold the house on October 16, 1960 to Joseph and Mary Riley, who purchased it for $35,000. They lived there until uh, they sold the house June of 1965 to Ronald Luis DeFeo. Now, their paperwork says $10 and other valuable consideration. I don't know what the, the, the purchase price of the house is unknown. Um, those mm-hmm. records, I looked at Suffolk County land records and they don't appear to go back that far online. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I could probably write and order the deed and the mortgage and any other paperwork in Louisian in Ronald and Louise's names uh, and get to the bottom of that. Um, it's possible Michael Briganti helped uh, either with the purchase price, with a down payment. Um, they may have had a mortgage. Again, I don't think you're looking at uh, high interest rates or a high principal to be borrowed. So it was probably something they could afford. 
Right. Um, and I don't think there has to be any nefarious, you know, mob ties or anything like that. Uh, well, or it helps with the lore. It, it helps with the story's lore, Lisa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> to keep putting, bringing the mob into it. Yeah. Um, the family moved in on June 28th, 1965. And that was, uh, Butch was 14, Dawn was nine, Allison was four, Mark was three, and John Matthew was uh, not yet born. Uh, he was born October 24th. In mm -hmm. uh, 1974, the house remained vacant. It was part of the DeFeo estate. Um. In July of 1974, George Lutz married Kathleen Teresa Quarantino. And he also adopted her three children from her first marriage, Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa. Um, they're closing. They purchased the house at 112 Ocean Avenue from the DeFeo Estate on December 17, 1975. They're, uh, they paid $80,000 for the property. And four hundred dollars for the furniture, so that's kind of creepy to me that they're keeping the furniture. The beds were there, the mattresses had all been replaced, but the beds were there. The mattresses just have a little blood on and them. You don't buy. They come with the of, house. Can you imagine them selling them the house? Right? Well, the like I said, I, as I recall, the estate got rid of the mass mattresses. Yeah, I know. The box just, springs you, and the yes, frames. I know. Yes, I, I but just, still, their children were sleeping in beds where kids have been murdered. Um, yeah, you know, not really a smart choice if you believe in the occult. Right. Um, although you know, my father has ashes have been in my den, um, since 2012, and not a single paranormal thing has happened in this house. I so. know, <laughs> I'm so hopeful that something will happen, right? <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, I mean, and every stick of furniture mm -hmm. and, uh, so that just, that kind of see, that's one of the things that leads me to believe that this was more than just a family buying the house. Oh, but, so you think this, they, they were sort of like groupies of this story or they were interested in the story. They were they, interested yeah, in, in, in I, cultivating something I from think bringing out these spirits. I don't have documentation, but I believe that they had some contact with DeFeo's attorney before mm -hmm. buying the house mm -hmm. and that they wanted to help DeFeo. And so they bought the house. They moved in on December 18th, 1975. And it was George, Kathleen, Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa. Uh, allegedly on December 18th, 1975, a father, Ralph J. Pecorero, mm -hmm. comes to the house to do a blessing because while George is a non-practicing Methodist, Kathleen mm -hmm. is Catholic and you know, even the, has the requisite family member who is a nun. <laughs> I believe it was an aunt. You notice that these house, these haunted houses never seem to happen with a Jewish family living, I living there. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, no i'm not gonna say it uh anyway he claims to have heard a deep masculine voice say get out while he was in the second floor bedroom which used to belong to mark and john matthew 
He also mm. said he observed a hundred hundreds of flies in the room, and he mm. claims to have been slapped. Uh, he told George no one should sleep in that room, but there are inconsistent statements about how and when that bit of information was conveyed. Um, mm. One of the claims is that he called on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1975, to tell the Lutz family not to sleep in that bedroom and that the call was interrupted and or prevented from by static. Um, and this is one of the things, well, let me go through some of the phenomena reported by the Lutzes and then we can talk about why it's questionable right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Okay, they claim flies appeared in the second floor sewing room Hundreds of them, and no matter how many times they killed or how many they killed, they just kept showing up. Uh, they claim Kathy was touched on the arm or hand, but in interviews, George was always the one to make the statement, not Kathy. Uh, and, they, and she smelled women's perfume. That's what I remember. Women's perfume, the and they claim yes. noxious odors as well. Um, they claimed a window fell and crushed Danny's hand. But when when and they claim to have gotten medical attention, but then when an interviewer said, oh, well, did you take him to this hospital? George would say, oh, well, we didn't really go to the doctor. We just bandaged it. And the next day it was fine. Uh, which doesn't sound I mean, if a hand is crushed, a hand is crushed. It's not going to be better the next day without right. some serious medical intervention. Uh, they claim to have heard doors opening and closing. They claim the front door was violently opening in the middle of the night. Uh, they claimed broken windows. They claimed broken fixtures on the doors. They claimed, uh, George claimed to have heard a marching band downstairs at three o'clock in the morning or 3.15 in the morning, but right. nobody else in the family heard it or woke up. And then uh, they have that tiger that attacks, right? That toy tiger a, or stuffed tiger. Lion. Yeah. Ceramic lion. Ceramic lion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and again, it was like, he was attacked by the ceramic lion, but, but not the marching band. Only so, uh, nobody saw the ceramic lion actually attack him, but they know it did because they saw a bite. Um, <sighs> George claimed that he awoke every morning at three fifteen. Um, they claimed that George and or Kathy were levitated above their bed. They claimed that their porcelain dishes and fixture turned black. They claim to have had noxious odors of decay and or excrement. Uh, they claim to have discovered a red room in the basement that didn't appear on any architectural plans for the house. They claim $1,500 disappeared. Um, George became obsessed with chopping wood and complaining he was always cold. The whole family, they claimed the whole family had lost significant weight while they were there. Uh, claims Missy had an imaginary friend, Jody, who turned out to be a red-eyed pig uh, claims okay. Missy talked to a ghost boy who turned into the pig claims to have oh. seen victims murdered, being murdered by Butch. Although if I recall correctly, Kathy claims to have seen it in the living room, like the list bodies that were all stacked up in the, the you mm -hmm. know, that were all placed in the living room after John List killed them. Um, they George and Danny claimed to have seen the boathouse door violently slamming up and down, but sometimes it was the garage door and they claimed to have tried to stop it by grabbing it and being lifted by it. 
Uh, they claim the family dog, Harry, tried to hang himself to escape his pen, which was near the boathouse. Um, even though the boathouse was in no way, shape, or form ever involved in the murders. Um, they claim to have tried to perform a second blessing attempt in January of 1976, which was too frightening to account, although they have said that they heard a voice saying, please stop, or will you please stop, which those are some freaking polite demons to the family, weren't they? Because they told <laughs> the they? priest, get out. But right. they tell the family, will you please stop? We don't like this. Right. Isn't that interesting? That's a really, really good point. They're really <laughs> nice. They're really polite to the family. Strangely, the people telling this, but not not quite so polite to the priest. Interesting. Um, and, you know, a lot of these a lot of these things, one of the things, the biggest problem I have now that I didn't really recognize in the beginning in 1977, 1978, when I read the book is that <laughs> when you were 12 or whatever. no. Whatever. Thir yeah, thirteen, fourteen. Mm -hmm. Um, that no two family members witness the same thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other big thing is a lot of it's not really traditional. Like being cold all the time is not equivalent of cold spots. And wasn't this what was this? Before the oil crisis, because I just remember how cold my growing up was when the oil crisis was going on. We we're getting electric heaters and all that I, stuff in I, the seventies. I think this might be that might have been a little later. But, but you know, the thing is, the family, the whole family, wasn't cold. It was only George. And from what <laughs> some of the interviews say, that he would be stoking the fires, and the family would be like putting on T-shirts. Oh, and, okay. You know, sweating. So they're their saying asses it's a off. demon cold, right? A demon cold um, on the family's house. Yeah, it okay. was like, and and they never, they never documented anything. I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't take the the porcelain turning black. They didn't take a picture of it. The dishes turning black. They didn't take a picture of it. The they had a film camera because there's a there's a video or a film of Kathleen with gingerbread houses at Christmas. Are serving oh, a meal wow. early in the house, you know. Mm -hmm. So why right. didn't they document anything? Um, and another thing is that they really didn't look for alternative explanations. The porcelain in the toilet could have been because the boys poured paint in the toilet. Right. Mm-hmm. Their first, um, they we went to demons immediately. That was their yeah. first thought. And um, uh, the the and you know there have been over the years there have been things like a neighbor said there was a big fat Siamese cat that Butch called a pig that would sit in the window outside one of the bedrooms, which I think was Allison's room. Um, cats often do. They like to look out windows. <laughs> So they, well, they like to, he would sit in the tree outside the window and look in the house. He would belong right. to a neighbor and he was a big fat Siamese cat. Or oh, a big, okay. Fat so cat. he'd be outside, right? Looking. And he would be okay. outside looking in. Um, or just outside hanging out in the tree and, you know, outside the window of the room. Um, well, that's not so spooky to have the daughter start talking to the neighbor's cat. That just seems like a fa fa 
fanciful right. well, part and, of childhood. And that's another thing too, is the kids would relay these things and George and Kathleen would say, this is what happened. So we never heard directly from Missy that she had an imaginary friend who was a boy or that he said things that scared her or that he turned into a pig. Um, and why would the name Jody? There wasn't a child named Jody. There was Allison Mark John. So why wouldn't the child use his or her own name? Oh, is that what the pig was supposed to be? It was supposed to be the ghost of one of the children. That's, I never yeah, got that. Supposedly, yeah. That's what oh. what's implied <laughs> is that it's one of the, the I didn't kids. get the deeper reading. Okay. I just I, took or it or as a, a thirteen year old reading a, the book. Yeah. Or it's a exactly. a demon posing as Jody. Mm -hmm. you know uh it it's but a lot of it's like i said not and like fifteen hundred dollars disappeared why didn't you call the police they and they would claim police came but then the officers that they named said i didn't have anything to do with that i didn't do i wasn't there a cop sued anson and the publishers because he was named in the book and he had nothing to do and his daughter was friends with Allison. Huh. The alleged red room was a storage closet underneath the stairs. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something not on the plans and, and some nefarious. Right, uh, that gets exposed. Thing. Right, it, was, it was always there. It was there when the Feos were there because the kids put their toys in there. Um, unreal yeah so, so it's not it's a little less menacing and the to toy room than the yeah. unknown red room where weren't they supposed to be like some kind of graveyard down there that's well yeah and that's another thing too is that a lot of um the defeo i mean the the lutzes claimed or anson claimed that the land was once owned by a guy named john ketchum who was driven out of Salem during the witch trials. However, there is no record of John Ketchum ever even living in Amityville or owning anything in Amityville. It was actually just Damien Eccles the, time the traveling, Ketchum. getting kicked out of Salem. <laughs> <laughs> there is a name Ketchum, but it it it's not John Ketchum and it's not related to anybody related to the witch trials in Salem. Um, and then Hans Holzer later on came up with this Shinnecock Indian. It was like a mental, they would take their mentally, uh, defective tribe members to this land and just leave them there to die, which mm. was really not the native way, um, with old people or, or people who were different, um, they were a lot more all-inclusive than us white folks are right. um and and it, it's interesting it's a lore that's very dated too because anything yeah. around native america like if you had this sort of ghost story about with that yeah. today it would be considered very yeah very politically incorrect <laughs> so. so that's one thing that sort of to me looks looks very hoaxy in in, in retrospect and odd 
Yeah. So um, on the 14th of January, 1976, the family fled. There was banging doors open, breaking doors. There had been allegedly mysterious windstorm and only their house was destroyed. Um, and then they observed greenish black slime dripping from the walls, dripping from keyholes and or flowing up the stairs. And they said, fuck it, we're out of here. Right. And they left with only the clothes on their backs. Now to they hear left them all the furniture the story, that they bought with the house behind them. Yes. Yeah. But as it turns out, the next day they sent movers to the house to collect their belongings. And and the movers saw and the nothing. movers experienced nothing. And there were no broken doors. There were no broken windows. There were no broken. I mean, one of the problems, one of the failures of the Lutzes is that none of this is corroborated. They don't have a bill so, for repairing windows. They don't have anything. They claim to have it, but when you ask them for it, oh, well, we lost that when we left it in the house when we moved. Well, yeah. you suppose it's not it convenient when the, right. And then when the priest comes to call, that this is the first time and the only time yeah. the demons get into the phone lines. Right. And, and, you know, Kathleen claims the phone company was out there constantly, but the phone company has no record of ever having been out there. Little bit Aside of a from when it there. installed the telephone service. Uh, on March 6, 1976, Ed and Lorraine Warren and others, and I have Hans Holter in my notes, but I was mistaken. Uh, they appeared to um, do an investigation, conduct a paranormal investigation with a couple of psychics and people from a, a psychic research center and somebody who's was at a uh who said they were affiliated with duke university but the entity was not really affiliated with duke university um and of course demons and uh the infamous demon boy picture came out um right i mean i don't think you got i don't think there's ever been another warren couple in our society uh since that since famous paranormal investigator couple that i that i know of that have reached that level of the warrants they were huge in that time they were big they're always on talk shows always they must have made a small fortune never met a property that wasn't haunted by a demon no nope Mm -mm. it was always demons this is where i used to be into the occult paranormal um i mean big time because my grandmother was into it and 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 bought me books about it Mm -hmm. um because i was a big reader but it was ghost adventures that kind of put me off the genre altogether because everything's a demon and everything is malicious Mm -hmm. and everything is out to get you right so no one's coming back saying like buy buy apple stock or you know it's all menacing (laughs) right well, you know, I kind of believe this is my personal belief. If you are afraid and if you are anxious, then whatever is happening is going to turn dark because you are feeding it negative energy. But if you remain neutral and if you are respectful, it will remain 
neutral and or benign. Mm. So, I mean, because my, my grandparents, my mother's parents lived in a house. We used to hear noises upstairs. We used to hear noises on the stairs. Uh, there was a part of the house that we were terrified of. We wouldn't go there. Um, the only room we felt safe in was my mother's room in the front of the house. So we would literally run up the stairs into her room and close the door. We were okay in Gary's room if Gary was there. But this other room we wouldn't go into. Well, at some point, I think it was the summer before my grandfather died. I kind of wanted my own space. And even though we all slept downstairs, I wanted to sleep upstairs. And I wanted my mom's room. But my sister was like, no, if you have it, we want it. So I ended up with the room that was scary. That led to the back part of the house that was even scarier. And mm -hmm. what I did was basically the first night I was in there, I was scared. I heard footsteps. I heard things. It was, it was not a restful night. The second night I was like, I really needed to sleep. I said, look, can you please not walk in here while I'm in here? Thank you. And it was quiet and I was able to sleep. Mm -hmm. I was, wow, I was amazing. respectful. I was calm. And I didn't let my anxiety and my fear take over. Hmm. And so it was okay. I mean, we went screaming out of the house once because we heard somebody walking down the stairs and there was wow. nobody on the stairs. We wow, were playing that is in the living room. Amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I mean that that was my experience. And but I I I think when I watch a lot of these shows like a haunting it's like you're at you're you're feeding it the bad energy that's making it bad yeah if you well, just you know stayed neutral said hello goodbye it it would not change because it's not it doesn't start off malevolent or malicious so you think yeah. you can feed it huh interesting yeah i mean that's that's my theory um, that you, it, it, their energy and they, they use energy in the environment. And if you're giving them fear and anxiety uh, and anger, then that's what they're going to get. And that's what's going to direct their intent or their behavior. So, so what well, I'm hearing from totally full of crap. From this whole thing is that the Lutzes were early innocence fraudsters who wanted to free DeFeo and, and yeah, make money think, in the know, process. I, I, I and, think uh, came up they, with this sort of plot well, to they didn't make, necessarily make him want to, best They didn't necessarily want to free him, but they didn't think his trial was fair because they thought that there was something going on in the house. Or that they could right. show something was going on in the house for him. Or maybe right. they believed Again, they believe Weber when Weber said there was something going on. Right. Um, and anyway, and part of DeFeo's claims about Weber is he wanted to make book money. And yeah. this is, of course, in the yeah. 80s after Amityville Horror was written. Oh, no, no, no. It started even before then. 
Oh, right. That's right. And he had that early appeal um, mm -hmm. where he said that he said that he was always trying to make money off of books and, and movies. Is that is there yeah. any truth in that? Yes. Um, so what happened was um, they fled. So the property remained vacant until August 29th, 1976, when the Defeo, when the Lutzes um, gave it back to the bank. On July okay. 18th, 1976, there was a, a story called Life in a Haunted House uh, published in New York Sunday News, which recounted the Lutz's experiences in um, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. And that was through the efforts of William Weber, who had been DeFeo's criminal attorney. Um, okay. Then the bank foreclosed on August 30th, 1976. Uh, George and Kathleen then are interviewed by Newsday at the behest of Weber. And George later claims that Weber coerced them into doing that interview on February 16th, 1976. On uh, February 27th, 1976, Butch writes to Weber. And in that letter, he assigns rights to the story of events of November 1974 for a movie to Weber. Hmm. For those rights, Butch's share will be 5% of the first million, 4% of the second million, and 3% of any revenue thereafter. On uh March 29, 1976, the Lutzes uh, get a proposed contract among Paul Hoffman, George and Kathy Lutz, William Weber, Hoffman's a writer, Bernard L. Burton, who's another attorney, and Frederick Mars, who I think was an investigator. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to form HWBM Corp, uh, and they want to distribute the 100 shares of the corporation, 40 shares to Hoffman, because I guess he was going to be doing all the heavy lifting with the writing. George and Kathleen were going to get 12 shares apiece, Weber 12 shares, Burton 12 shares, and Mars 12 shares. Uh, what a and, bunch of fraudsters. Yeah. Shortly <laughs> after that, there's a parting of the ways. Uh, George and Kathy decide to cut ties with Weber, either due to what they believe to be the unfair terms of the HWBM corpor corporation, uh, which doesn't give them the lion's share that they feel they're entitled to because they're the ones that lived in that haunted house and went through those horrible experiences uh, or because they learned that Weber intends to share some of the profits with DeFeo. Ooh. Ooh. In 1976, they're introduced to Jay Anson, who is a writer. Um, they turn over tapes to Anson. Anson uses those tapes, which I believe... If I'm not mistaken, they recorded after they left the house. Uh, they left the house and lived with Kathleen's mother in Oyster Bay, I want to say. And then they went, they flew to San Diego and moved to, and they lived in San, they moved to San Diego. On January 14th, 1977 is when Han, Hans Holzer does his investigation. He's with Ethel Johnson Myers, his his medium that he worked with for many, many years. And a woman by the name of Laura Dedeo, who conducted an investigation at 112 Ocean Avenue. Um, he's the one that came up with the whole Shinnecock Indian story. 
which okay. is really wrong because it was a different tribe that was on Amityville or on that part of Long Island. Um, not the Shinnecocks. Um, there's no there's no evidence of any Indian burials on that property. Um, I believe it was swampy and it really wasn't of much use to anybody until the English came and moved or the Dutch came and started using it and maybe were able to, I mean, the Dutch were probably very good at reclaiming swamp and marshland because that's what a lot of Holland is. Mm -hmm. um, so then there's a letter on uh, February 1st, 1977 from Reb Weber to Butch. And it notes receipt of Butch's letter advising that they were not answered because Weber had changed firms. He advised that Hoffman had not started the manuscript because no publisher had given him a definite offer and Hoffman had changed agents. According to Hoffman's new agent, Dell Publishing Company was interested in Butch's story um, because Weber didn't have the Lutz's story, so he was going to try and capitalize on DeFeo's story. He advised Hoffman that Holzer was also interested in writing about Butch's story and that Weber was negotiating with Holzer and that Weber would go with whoever got a publishing deal first. Hoffman had promised to pay Butch 5% of the fees he received from Daily News and Good Housekeeping, so he's acknowledging that deal or that part of the deal. Uh, Hoffman had not paid Weber either. Uh, Holzer had been researching Butch's story, including the land on which the house is located, and did have a very interesting story, uh, which, as it turns out, was total BS. <laughs> um, he also advised that there were court proceedings that were set for January 25th, 1977, that were continued due to defects in service, but I'm not sure what, at, what that dealt with. Um, mm -hmm. it may have been something in surrogate court, which I think handles probate matters. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the surrogate court wanted to appoint a special guardian for Butch and, um, the surrogate wanted to ensure that Butch knows that he's giving up any future rights he may have to his parents' estate if his appeal is successful. Um, and he promises to come see Butch during February, said he'd been able to un, unable to make the trip due to the weather and that many people sent their regards to Butch, including court officers and sheriff's deputies. Um, on March 17, 1977, uh, uh, James and Barbara Cromarty purchased the house at 112 Ocean Avenue for $55,000 from the bank. Mm -hmm. An article is published in April of 77, the are uh, in good housekeeping called our dream house was haunted. And this is where Lutz, I think wanted to make his money. If he couldn't make it from the actual publishing deals, he was going to make it with lawsuits because he sued with Kathy, Paul Hoffman, William Weber, Bernard Burton, Frederick Mars, good housekeeping, New York Sunday news and the Hearst corporation in May of 1977 for misappropriation, misappropriation of names for trade purposes, invasion of privacy and mental stress. He sought four, four and a half million dollars in damages. Oh, wow. Hoffman, wow. Weber and Burton each counterclaimed for fraud and breach of contract. 
and they claim damages in the amount of $2 million each. No honor among thieves, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The, in December 13, 1977, the novel um, Amityville Horror is published by Jay Anson. Um, in 1977, James and Barbara Cromartie sue Prentice Hall, Jay Anson, George and Kathleen Lutz in the Supreme Court of the state of New York County of Suffolk, because almost as soon as the book came out and even before the book came out because of the articles, they were, they had people knocking on their door, looking for Butch. They had Mm -hmm. people sitting in front of their house. They had people trespassing on their property, uh, and they really couldn't get too much peace on that property and they also had zero zero paranormal activity or experiences in their house isn't that interesting Hmm? and and didn't they change the i'm not sure which owner did this but i thought the windows were changed and the address Um, was changed or the the house number i believe the cromarties owned the house for about 10 years as i understand it they they left and rented it out for a period of time. Um, they did change the windows and they did get to town to change the address. But the house, because of the way it sits, which is different from the other houses around it, it's always going to be recognizable regardless of whether it's 112 or 108 or 106 or 20. Right. It, uh, it's odd because it sits sideways with the yard at the side of the house. Instead right, it almost looks like doors. a face, right? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. you know, right. Yeah. So uh, on March 21st, 1978, uh, Jay Anson, on behalf of himself and George and Kathleen Lutz and Professional Films, Inc., uh, get a copyright of the Amityville Horror written by Jay Anson. Um, and that was published in 1977. Uh, in 1978, on December 15th, there's an order in a case called Camarado versus Anson. He's allegedly one of the police officers who's named in the book or in an early edition of the book who had nothing to do, but he was named by the Lutzes as having come out there to see damage or something that had happened um and that order denied the publisher's motion to dismiss due to statute of limitations uh because service on anson interrupted the statute as to the publisher Hmm. um and some of these court opinions are very 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 brief so i cannot get a lot of detail from them uh 1978 there's an order in lutz versus hoffman dismissing the claims against good housekeeping new york sunday news and hearst corporation as there was no invasion of privacy issues and for failure to state a claim on which, upon which relief could be granted to the lutzes 1979 um that is allegedly when um holter was recommended to weber although weber talks about him in another letter to butch so that's an error in the source documents which is why i like court opinions um (laughs) and defeo is actually interviewed at some point by holzer and cooperates with him an opinion is issued in lutz versus hoffman 
uh, on March 5th, 1979, but I don't really know exactly what it was because uh, what is available is just the first page that doesn't have any meat to it. Uh, mm -hmm. It may be an appeal of the dismissal of the claims against the publications and the publisher. Uh, there's an opinion on May 28, 1979 in Camerato versus Anson um, affirming the denial of the motion to dismiss. Um, and basically Pat Camerato was named in the Amityville Horror as a police officer who responded to calls for service made by the Lutz family. These calls for service didn't happen. Reprints of the novel replaced Camerato's name with pseudonym. Mm -hmm. um, the movie... Uh, Amity, the Amityville Horrors world premiere was at the New York Museum of Art on July 24th, 1979. Starred James Brolin and Morgan uh, James Brolin, Margot Kidder, and Roy Steiger? Older Steiger, yeah. actor. Rod Steiger. Yeah. Rod Steiger, yeah. Uh, and then the the main release was July 27, 1979. Uh, apparently sometime in 1979, there's a declaration in uh, the Holtz, the Lutz litigation, I think with Hoffman, Weber and Burton, which says the events described in the book never happened. Mm -hmm. uh, George and Kathy have a polygraph on June, in June of 1979, uh, no signs of deception are detected, but, you know, they believe they're, you know, good actors, I guess. They believe their story. Well, they also, you know, immerse themselves in the occult. Yes. You know, and, and they're, one of the things I read, he was describing a conversation between George Lutz and himself where he was just, he, he said he had read, George Lutz was saying in this phone call that he read so many books on the occult that he couldn't couldn't nail down the one piece of information he was sharing to any one book because he was so immersed in all of it. Right, right. Um, and that I think um we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Because there have been documentaries. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> it's uh, always those documentaries. Yeah. The <laughs> Um, the, the Lutz versus Hoffman case went to trial in September of 1979. And apparently on the stand under oath, George admits that virtually every, everything in the Amityville horror book is pure fiction. Mm -hmm. The judge in that case issues an order on September 10th, 1979 that holds the reporting of information concerning an allegedly haunted house did not evade the evade the privacy of the homeowners who desired a proprietary interest in their story since their names and pictures of the house were noteworthy. The judge also said, based on what I've heard, it appears to me that to a large extent, the book is a work of fiction relying in a large part upon the suggestions of Mr. Weber. Uh, the judge also stated that he did have serious ethical concerns about Weber and Burton and their part in this uh, as media agents rather than attorneys. Mm -hmm. An article is published in the Washington Post on September 16th, 1979, called The Calamityville Horror, and you can find the full article and read it online. 
Um, it outlines the various lawsuits spawned by the Amityville horror book and movies, as well as competing interests suing and being sued. It reports an out-of-court settlement of Weber's claim against the Lutzes, notes discrepancies among the various versions, including the Good Housekeeping article, Anson's book, and the film. Um, Lutz claims that Hoffman wrote his articles without consulting him or Kathy. Uh, it also recounts Weber's claim in an AP article that the story was concocted over several bottles of wine with the Lutzes, in which Weber mentioned details of the DeFeo murders that the Lutzes snapped up. When asked George recognize, if he recognized the name Pecorero, George said, Newsday says a lot of things as far as we're concerned. He's Father Mancuso. There were a number of priests involved who will never be told about. Also a rabbi. It'll right, never be told. Don't, don't try. I, to, oh, there was also a rabbi. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bring you the Jews. Okay. It'll never be told unless uh, I find a publisher for a follow-up book full of detailed proofs. So, in nineteen, even in nineteen seventy-nine, George Lutz is out to market and profit from this experience. Anybody right. who and, and it was such a hit. It, I mean, it was such a sensation. Yeah. It's such a sensation. And anytime you have this kind of windfall, just between the book and the movie, it was I think the big mm -hmm. biggest independent movie that year, you're gonna have all these lawsuits, and especially when it's built on such a what I consider I don't know, such a a, a questionable story you know, with such questionable characters involved. I mean, yeah. anytime you're trying to profit off of a murder, it's not looking good. And were the Son of Sam laws, they were in effect during that time. Yeah. So you couldn't profit off a murder. So Weber really couldn't profit off of it in, in directly well, no, without no, 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 no. sort of... Right? Son of Sam, Son of Sam only restricted the killer. So, right. So his lawyer could money. go... But so his lawyer could go off and, and make his money lawyer could make as much okay. money as he wanted. Um, and and, uh, you know, people like the Lutzes could claim right. all these things and make as much money as they wanted. Um, okay. The only person who was restricted was Butch. And again, Butch Not selling his help. rights <laughs> for profit. But. The, the remedy under the New York Son of Sam law is the family of the victims right. has a cause of action. And in Butch's case, although he had his grandparents were still alive, mm -hmm. they could have gone after him if they wanted to. Um, but yeah, but in, in his mind, they're dead. They can't sue me. Even right. though, you know, because I killed them. <laughs> yeah, because I killed them. They can't sue me. They did. <laughs> Right. Um, on September 17, 1979, Weber, in an article in People magazine, uh, outs the Amityville horror as a hoax created over many bottles of wine with George and Kathy Lutz. Um, then in 1979, Hans Holter publishes the book Murder in Amityville. Uh, also in 1979, the television show In Search of, hosted by the great, late, great Leonard Nimoy. Uh, does a, sto a story about the Amityville horror in the house. And in that story, 
Pecorero or somebody in shadow claiming to be Pecorero claims to have been slapped while blessing the house on December 18th, 1975. So he can't get his story straight. Um, On September 4th, 1980, uh, Weber wrote to DeFeo telling DeFeo that Holzer had not paid Weber's share of profits that Weber had advanced DeFeo's share of Lutz's money, even though the Lutzes breached their agreement. DeFeo is the only party to have been paid in full and that uh, Weber will pay additional money to DeFeo's attorney when he receives it. In March Mm -hmm. of 1980, DeFeo wrote a letter to a guy named Robert Race, who I believe is the son of Herman Race, the investigator, assigning his rights to Herman Race and Dr. Daniel Schwartz, who was the uh, psychologist that deemed him possessed or insane at his criminal trial for a commercial venture, including a movie based on Holzer's book. Uh, in 1981, uh, the Lutzes, working with another author, created The Amityville Horror 2. Also in 1981, Holzer published a book called The Amityville Curse. Um, which were probably the Shinnecock Indians and some chieftain that didn't like white people <laughs> living on that land. Um, on June 22nd, 1981, uh, John Jones, Paul Comedian, who may be an agent, uh, George Lutz and Kathleen Lutz take out a copyright on the Amityville Horror 2, written by John, uh, John Jones, and that right. is published on January 15th, 1982. They take out another copyright on January 19, 1982, based on the story of John, George and Kathleen Lutz, because George and Kathleen apparently claimed that whatever was in the house followed them to California and they continued having paranormal activity in California. Oh, <laughs> Well, they they got to keep uh, the franchise going. Not, right? yeah. not a lot of people read John Jones's book. I'm probably one of about seven or eight people <laughs> uh, because it didn't result in a movie or anything wow uh, hard 19- to believe right because yeah. it was such a big thing you know i mean how many sequels did they do a lot well right? no but those were all done for the most part outside george lutz right. um the only other one that George Lutz was involved in was the 2005 remake with Ryan Reynolds. And, right. Um, but all the other movies, Amityville Horror 2, which was released in 1982, The Possession, um, that one was kind of gross because that one alleged or implied an incestuous relationship between Dawn and Butch. Um, well, and, and and literal possession of Butch. Well, they they gotta they gotta up the ante, and after you've had slime in a in a yeah. statue start biting you, a lion statue, you gotta in a, a full marching band, you gotta up the ante a little bit. And then in 1983, a movie called Amityville 3D was released, and that was not related to the DeFeos or anything. It was a a fictional story about a divorced man moving to the house and the house killing his daughter. Mm. Um, and I, I think 
Kyle Richards might have been the daughter. Oh wow. Uh, I I don't remember. It was a it was a child actress who was very popular at the time. Kind of like the Richards sister, Kim and Kyle. Um George and Kathleen and John Jones and Paul Kamadian and Gotham Press and Albert Rao, bankruptcy trustee for the Lutzes, sued uh, Dino De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis Corporation, Orion Pictures, Columbia Pictures, EMI, and Doe's 1 through 30 inclusive uh, based on the brief media campaign for Amityville 2 that referenced the Lutzes fleeing the house in Amityville in 1976. Um, that was part of the initial promotional campaign. I think after the lawsuit was filed, they pulled that campaign. But it uh, they claimed that the, the promotional campaign misled the public into believing its two movies were the sequels to the Lutz's story and so diluted the value of their sequel that their plans to produce it collapsed. Um, that's not what made it collapse. It collapsed because it was no good. In 1985, <laughs> right. Amityville, the final chapter, was published or created uh, based on a copyright application. It was published June, uh, January 2nd, 1985, and the copyright was awarded on January 25th. Uh, Hans Holter also published Secret of Amityville. Um, in 1985, Butch met Geraldine Gates when she visited him in prison. Um, August 10th, 1987 is when the Cromarties sold 108 Ocean Avenue to Peter and Jean O'Neill for $325,000 because the New York real estate boom has happened and the house they bought for $55,000 is now worth much, 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 much more. Right. Uh, George and Kathleen Lutz divorced in 1988. Uh, June 1st, 1988, uh, the Am Amityville, The Evil Escapes was published. There was an opinion on June 29th, 1989 in Lutz versus De Laurentiis. And this is an appellate opinion upholding the trial court uh, dismissal of the action or actually reversing the trial court dismissal of the action um, on at least one of the causes of action. It says plaintiffs attempt to turn their single cause of action into multiple causes of action based on other legal theories was either improper or surplusage. The sustaining of the demur and the granting of judgment on the pleadings was correct as to all counts save one. Um so this was an unfair competition claim that was reversed and reinstated. The matter is remanded to the trial court with directions to vacate its order sustaining the demurrer to a single cause of action for unfair competition as pleaded in count one and permit the plaintiffs to proceed to trial on that cause of action. The plaintiffs are to recover costs on appeal. Mm -hmm. um, the concurrence dissent was very interesting, so I quoted it. By this action, the Lutzes, despite having been unsuccessful in early, earlier attempts to establish that anyone who writes about Amityville invades their privacy, 
and misappropriates their right of publicity, and despite having surrendered to defendants' predecessors an interest in the copyright in the book written by Jay Anson, are trying out yet another theory to preserve unto themselves the exclusive right to tell Amityville tales. The new theory of unfair competition by misappropriation of secondary meaning has no more vitality than the other theories. I would hold that the plaintiffs cannot, as a matter of law, claim that Amityville stories are identified in the public's mind as originating exclusively with them, and since there's no precedent supporting a claim of non-exclusive secondary meaning, the trial court properly dismissed the action. It went on to say, in sum, this case is nothing more than an unjustified attempt by plaintiffs to arrogate unto themselves the right to commercially exploit the names of the town of Amityville to the exclusion of the literary, artistic, and commercial worlds. An already overburdened judicial system should not be subjected to protracted litigation of claims that patently lack merit. Although the existence of secondary meaning usually raises factual questions, whereas here, the relevant facts are undisputed and are so extreme that no reasonable trier of fact could find that secondary meaning exists, the action is properly dismissed at the pleading stage. I would affirm the trial court judgment in its entirety. No, rejected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he may not have been successful. He claims he only made $300,000 total. But we only have his word for that. Right. No, you would make a lot more on the book. I would think, I know he didn't, you know, based on his story, I I would think, I would think he would make a lot. That's where you tend to make a lot of money, unless they made some terrible deal for the book, for the book. And I think that's part of it. I think part of it is the, the subsequent books were not that good. Like I read Amityville 2, but it was so poorly written that I'd never read the other Amityville books that John Jones wrote. Yeah. Um, and that's probably what happened with a lot of things. And again, anytime anybody told an Amityville story, George Lutz was right down to the courthouse to file a lawsuit saying, oh, no, 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 that's my story. So it had to be worth something. Right, right. Um, and if right. he made bad business deals with bad contracts, mm-hmm. that's on him. Right. Didn't his son do a documentary? I thought I remember seeing that. Both sons have done documentaries, yes. But that's much later because they're, Mm -hmm. um, from what I understand, while George and Kathleen Lutz spent several years promoting these stories and telling these stories in various media appearances and interviews, uh, the children were at some kind of home and not their family home. Hmm. so uh july 1st 1989 amityville the horror returns is published by john jones um a petition for review to the california supreme court by the defendants respondents in the de Laurentiis case uh was refused by the california supreme court uh the copyright was uh applied for excuse me for uh amityville the evil evil escapes and amityville the horror returns again 
this is after the divorce, so only George Lutz holds these copyrights. And this is one of his ways of trying to make money because holding these copyrights, anybody who says anything close, he's going to sue them. Um, and then they're going to have to prove that their story is not his. Uh, there's an article... Uh, that's published on June 25th, 1992 um, on behalf of Ron DeFeo claiming money tainted the defense. Weber was pursuing book and movie deals. The Lutz's claims were a hoax and for the first time blaming Don for the murders. Um, there was also uh, an attempt to blame the mother for the murders. Mm-hmm. Um then uh, again, 1995, Lutz takes out a copyright on the Amityville horror contract that they entered in 1988. Um, and that was certified on September 19th, 1994. The copyright was actually granted in 1995 on October 3rd. 1997, uh, Peter and Jean O'Neill sell 108 Ocean Avenue to Brian Wilson for $310,000. So they lost 15, but by that time the boathouse was deteriorating and the house was deteriorating and was going to need some work. And then um, Butch on May 1st, 2000 wrote a letter to someone. We don't know who it was because the identity of the recipient was redacted. Um, he claimed to be in the prison law library five days a week researching the law. He claims the son of Sam Law was abolished by the U.S. Supreme Court, which I don't think is correct. He says New, New York State adapted its own version, which is wrong because New York State, yeah. the son of Sam occurred in New York State. And New York State enacted the law because David Berkowitz was trying to sell his story. Right. About and, the and then it was it was undone by... Henry Hill and his publisher when they wanted to make Goodfellas, yeah, which was Goodfellas, based on his right. book. Uh, um, he says they adapted, he, the New York state adapted their own version. Uh, but that said only his family could sue him and they're all dead. Suit has to be filed within 10 years, uh, which I guess he implies it's more than 10 years after the murders. So now he can do whatever he wants. Um, the victims were his family and his grandmother has given him an excess of a six digit number on legal fees. If books and movies make money, Butch's chosen charity is Barry Springer, who was made an appearance as an alibi witness. Um, and he wants whoever the recipient is to send Butch or Barry rather $2,000 and we can proceed. Right. Um, he goes on to say the only thing that's real about Amityville are the murders. Has documents against Weber and Holzer. Yes, it was all a hoax. Yes, in June of 1992, Weber was exposed at a an evidentiary hearing in Suffolk County Supreme Court on the witness stand. There's a videotape. It was a hoax to make money. It was all about money. As it was a cold-blooded murder period, no ghosts, no demons, just three people in which I was one. The facts, the assistant district attorney medical examiner both said at my trial, three or four people committed the, the crime. Yes, see and read the transcripts. We'll call up Barry Springer as he was going to call you on my behalf. Butch is not smart. 
um, August 14, 2000, George Lutz files an application to trademark the phrase the Amityville Horror. September 19, 2000, uh, Butch writes to Geraldine. He had just finished speaking to her on the phone. He appreciates everything she's doing and has done, and he believes her. He still loves her. Yes, he's full of too much hate. This Amityville thing must come to an end. The Lutzes are full of shit. Yes, this bitch, Diane, all of them. I don't know what that refers to. Um, Butch is a con man. He's a con artist. Oh, and I yeah. think George Lutz was a con artist as well. Uh, he yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's like they're drawn to the thing that they are, mm -hmm. and uh, oh yeah, and Gerald, it, it's really Jay Anson's baby that made it work. Uh, you know, it's not beautifully written, but it's written in a formula yeah. that will make you read it. You know, I'm right. curious how that that all came down, but if you know, meaning that did did the publishers give him the formula we want it to be written like mm -hmm. that because some of the some in the 70s some of those books like jaws were written like that um yeah. so i i don't know i, I just think that i found i very thought similar jaws was actually people. very well written yeah oh peter but it's a Definitely. yeah it was yeah. i knew him yeah he's friend of he's my dad's best friend so i knew him very well and used to swim in his pool but he could write but what he, that's he was given you know the formula of jaws by the by the publishers to, to oh write okay it. well yeah they wanted they him wanted, to write a yeah. book that was his well, he was i think that that was the, becoming yeah. that was becoming more although i don't know because a lot of a lot of movies in the 60s and 50s were also from books and like there's yeah. only like seven stories and most right. of them are from Shakespeare. Exactly. This is a formula. They wanted them to follow a formula. Yeah. And and I so, think that Amityville Horror follows a, a formula, or could argue. Maybe, it's just very readable. It's very readable. And and I don't think anything was produced in that I, same quality. I mean, I don't keep to call yeah. it quality, but, you know, quality for a pulp, for a pulp book mm. after that. And, and I think what maybe what they were recognizing in the 70s that they didn't recognize before is that books needed to tailor to the formula to be successful in movie rights. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, that 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 was if the book didn't have the right formula, it was harder to market it to the studios um, mm -hmm. and if you have Paramount watch the offer about the making of the Godfather oh I'm dying to yeah I'm dying to watch that it's on my list of things to it watch is yeah. excellent 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 I mean <laughs> I stayed I would watch three episodes a night because I couldn't stop I would stay up an hour past my bedtime on a weeknight i said out <laughs> because i was i great stop. yes i was great was that was that enough no was i the greatest producer that's why richard evans right what's his first name evans robert evans robert imitation evans. yeah we used to listen to his audiobook when it came out uh in the office when i was at 
uh, Jersey films. It's just like the, it's just like so outrageous, his audiobook of his mm-hmm. biography. He's the producer of The Godfather. He, he was the, he was head of Paramount. Yeah, I think at that time, and he did. He was head of Paramount Pictures, but he had um, a boss above him with Paramount Global. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and this is funny because I work at a law firm that is involved in asbestos litigation, oh, and Paramount had enormous. ended up yeah. with industrial. Uh, subsuming industrial businesses so cbs and paramount are names that appear interesting um but and if you watch the offer you'll see uh the head of that was like a um was an austrian guy oh interesting and so the dynamics among uh among Evans and the guy that he chose who kind of fell into Gila Rentas movie production. No, uh, it was um God, what was his name? No. Uh, he fell into movie production. He was like a computer programmer. Hmm. And he fell into movie production and he was a producer on Hogan's Heroes. Wow. And um, he's like the main character. He's played by Miles Teller. And I can't remember his name escapes me right now. And it's terrible that it does. But the other funny part of the story is the interaction between Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo. (laughs) Who produced the screenplay. From Puzo's Mm. book. Hmm. And, and they asked to, I, I mean, according to Robert Evans, they made the the asked that the Godfather be made longer. Yes, yes, <laughs> that was uh, that was one of the and that was one of the problems. But they were like, to tell the story, we have to, we have to do this. Um, and there was a lot of pushback. They didn't want Puzo involved, but Coppola was like, Puzo's got to be involved. And then mm-hmm. he and Puzo together were the ones who wrote the screenplay. But I mean, it is, it's an excellent, excellent story. Um, yeah, I can't wait to watch that. It's, 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 it's sooner the better. Have you ever I, done a, um, an episode on the Chinatown murders around that movie? Speaking of Robert Evans, I've always found that very mysterious. Those that wasn't it a murder around, around the Chinatown no, 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 no. It wasn't Chinatown. It was the other film that was that Robert Evans was involved in. You know what I'm talking about? That was like set in a famous nightclub. Cotton Club. Cotton Club murders. Have you ever done it? No, I haven't. I haven't. But I I will look into that. And when I have my legal research um subscription. I'm, I always I'm thought there was more to, to that. Yeah, yeah. I always thought Robert Evans was probably involved in that. He was involved with Heidi Fleiss. He, I mean, there's just like we're such yeah. a, a, a criminal element is always sort of, you know, comes in you and out of watch, the. You need to watch right? the offer because Joe Colombo's in it. Oh. Uh, okay. So anyway, 
Um, Butch in this letter to Geraldine off or also makes reference to 2020, which may be an interview that he did with ABC's primetime and claims that the police let the real killer go. Uh, but Butch will name him and tell it all as the killer was the one who told the cops everything, which is stupid, crazy, because the one who told the cops everything was you. Mm -hmm. There were no informants that put, you know, put the finger on Butch. Mm -hmm. You know, Butch confessed. Right. And, uh -huh. he, and then at one point he wanted to wanted he wanted to appeal on the he wanted DNA testing. I was thinking yeah. if this was if he asked yeah. now, he'd probably get it, probably get exonerated, quote unquote. But he said, because I was I want my clothes tested because uh -huh. the clothes that they found in the drain weren't my clothes. Right. He was a scamster. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and got an and evidentiary hearing at one point. I mean, he also later claimed and I, I really I'm really aggravated with New York because New York records. They affirm without written opinion. You can't get records as easily online as like Texas and Oklahoma. Um, uh, I'm still trying to get these records from from Queens. And I've called like a million. I'm going to have to just physically go there at this yeah. point. And that's the, really the way, you know, that's the way to go is if you can physically go there, go there. But I'm not just not sure. Nobody can tell me which way. It's going to be a couple trips. Uh, nobody's yeah. telling me exactly where this could be, where it is, but I'll, I'll figure yeah. it out eventually. Um, so anyway, he also claims he wrote to someone named Roger and told him to send Wiener $800, uh, whoever Wiener is. And he encloses a copy of a letter he sent to Timberland. I don't know who Timberland, the singer, Timberland, the shoe manufacturer, and a copy of a letter to Wiener, whoever that is. And he wants them to get the letters before Jerry calls them. Um, so he's got Geraldine Gates continuing to advocate on his behalf, even after he divorced her and accused her of all kinds of heinous behavior. Uh, then in November 6, 2001, George Lutz's public uh, trademark for the Amityville horror phrase is published for a series of nonfiction books in the fields of paranormal studies and demonology uh, first used on uh, October 1st, 1977 and in commerce since October 1st, 1977. Uh, then the trademark is actually registered on January 29, 2002. Uh, in 2002, a guy by the name of Rick Osona comes up with an idea of, for a book called The Night the DeFeos Died, Investigating the Amityville Murders, because guess what? He's hooked up with Geraldine Gates, who claims to have married Butch DeFeo in 1973. And at this time, Butch is cooperating and claiming that he did marry uh, Geraldine in 1973. They published that book on Mar March 15, 2002. Rick Osuna's author, Geraldine DeFeo, writes a foreword. And basically, this is, again, selling the story that Dawn is the real killer, that she killed Ron Sr. and then killed Louise and the kids. And the kids, Ronnie... because that's what's most objectionable to other prisoners, that, that yeah. probably, I would think, that he killed those small children. And but... that then he discovers everybody murdered and Dawn 
and Don struggle for the gun and, 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 you know, like she goes in his closet, gets his gun, his ammunition and uses that to kill the kids. Um, they also allege there was, they also claim there were other people there and that there was a second person involved. And they claim that um, there's evidence that a second person, a second weapon was used by some of the victims in the autopsy reports, but, but on his website, he doesn't have the full and complete autopsy reports and what he does have doesn't really support what he's claiming. He claims Dawn had unburned powder on the front of her nightgown. However, the note that he posts as proof of this fact doesn't say where on the nightgown and doesn't refer to the powder as unburned. It just refers to it as powder. So it could be burned or unburned. Which and could, it could have been on the front happened or from the back. being shot. Right. Right. You know, exactly. Yeah. Um, it could have been on the arm that was up above her head. I mean, it doesn't say where on the nightgown it was, was found. George Lutz enters an agreement with Barstow Productions to permit a sequel to the 1979 film to proceed. Um, and I believe that he got wind of a proposed sequel to the 1979 film or a remake of the 1979 film and started rattling his saber and threatening to sue. And so the producers decided to enter an agreement with him. Uh, one of the terms of the agreement prohibits the film from intentionally defaming or libeling Lutz. Uh, he also, uh, there's a copyright issued for The Night the Fails Died to Osuna. Um, Lutz versus Osuna, he filed suit uh, on February 14, 2003, claiming conversion, trademark infringement, copyright infringement, breach of contract, and fraud. Um, a copyright on the Amityville Horror Option Agreement entered between Lutz and Barstow Productions is uh, issued on the 25th of April, 2003. Uh, then there's an assignment copyright issued on in June of 2003 because Barstow had assigned its rights to the agreement with Lutz to a joint venture, which includes Barstow, EFF, Independent Inc., Integrated Films and Management, and Marty and Holding, AVV, uh, assigning all of their Amityville Horror-related rights to, to New Image, Inc., including the rights obtained from Lutz, subject to the current terms and conditions of that agreement. Uh, New Image and Lutz enter into their own agreement in October of 2003 uh, where Lutz is going to get 50000 when Daily Variety reports that the theatrical box, box office gross receipts have equaled or exceeded $10 million and New Image is going to pay 7.5% of a contingent, contingent compensation of the first picture and 7.5% of mar merchandising profits from the first picture to Lutz. Um, there's another assignment by New Image to Dimension Films uh, and Dimension Films agrees to undertake all of the obligations, limitations, and provisions of the New Image assignment, including fees, Lisa, compensation, and cred credit obligations. I have a question for you. Yes. Who hasn't been sued over Amityville Horror uh, um, over the George years? George Lutz never sued Ron DeFeo. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> there you go. No money there. 
<laughs> um, and then, you know, there are other agreements. Dimension as a distributor contractually obligates itself to pay the $50,000 and 7.5% contingent compensation and merchandising profits. Um, there's a copyright by jo by Ronald Jr. Butch to a spooky, spooky Amityville house painting created in 2003. Uh, Ryan Katzenbach, who had been in a who had been a publisher for the night that Afeos died, and Rick Osuna sued uh, Greg, Lant, Greg Grant and Tracy Lynn DeFeo, who claimed to be a wife of Butch um, at this time, that they were negotiating with so Sony Pictures and USA Network to produce a film based on the night that DeFeo died, and Grant published a website called The Night Exposed, which contradicted Osuna's claims and Osuna's work. Tracy Lynn DeFeo, Butch's alleged wife, made defamatory statements and published defamatory letters that allege Osuna's work was a fraud. Uh, they further claimed that Grant and DeFeo interfered in their negotiations with Sony Pictures and USA Network. And I really don't understand this because Osuna was telling the story that Butch was trying to tell in his post-conviction litigation. Right. But I guess the problem is Osuna would not make a deal and pay Butch. That's right. It's always about money. It's, and so right. when that didn't happen, Butch enlisted Grant and DeFeo, uh, Tracy Lynn, who claimed to be his wife, but he was, wasn't officially married to her, to undermine Osuna's work. Um, a motion to dismiss was granted on June 7, 2005. Uh, as to everything but um, the libel claims by Osuna as uh, regarding claims that he was an animal abuser, convicted felon, and a pornographer. All the other claims were granted without leave to amend, and uh, Osuna had to file an amended complaint within 20 days following the date of service of this order. And that's the last information I can find about that lawsuit. Um, Osuna's website does not claim victory or triumph or money. So I'm guessing it ultimately was not successful. <laughs> Lutz then <laughs> sued Dimension Films on June 10th, 2005 in the Superior Court for the State of California in and for the County of Los Angeles Central District. Uh, for defamation by libel and slander by portraying Lutz as a homicidal maniac who intentionally attacked and killed his dog with an axe, built coffins for his wife and three children, forced his son to hold onto a log while he attempted to split the log with an axe, choked his wife and repeatedly slammed her against the wall while holding her by the throat, attempted to kill his wife by drowning her in the boathouse, chased his wife and children onto the steeply pitched roof at night, during a rainstorm, repeatedly shot at his wife and children with a rifle and attacked his son with an axe with the intent to kill him. These are all events that took place in the Amityville Horror 2000 remake with Ryan Reynolds, who had to take off his shirt multiple times and was extremely buff. <laughs> which you appreciated, right? Um, which was very nice. And, um, <laughs> but he, he, you know, underwent this psychological change very dramatic um right. and that the remake he claimed the remake had been released in the u.s and canada 
and had grossed more than $64 million and had grossed $17 million, in excess of $17 million in, in Australia, Austria, Germany, and UK, and was scheduled to be released in France and New Zealand. He also alleged breach of contract uh, for the intentional def defamation libel for the failure to pay him his $50,000, for the yeah. failure to pay his 7.5% of contingent compensation, and 7.5% of the merchandising profits earned by the remake. Uh, he wanted general damages and amount to be proved at trial and punitive damages and an injunction in against the defendants continuing to distribute the remake in his first cause of action. In his second cause of action, he wanted his $50,000 and he wanted legal interested costs, legal interest costs, including reasonable attorney's fees and other further relief as the court may deem appropriate in his as to all causes of action on october 31st 2005 the judge in that case entered an order finding the film was a work of fiction protected under the first amendment and it fell within california's anti-slap which is strategic lawsuits against public participation statute designed to protect free speech the remake is an activity of widespread public interest it is a movie viewed by millions of fans and generating millions of dollars for the defendants who participated in writing the screenplay, producing the movie, and distributing the 2005 remake, uh, probably also taking the risk that the remake would be a big old flop. Also, it upheld a release agreement signed by Lutz in 1977 with the original film's producers in which Lutz consented to allowing the filmmakers to alter characters and agreed not to sue for defamation. The ruling did not affect the breach of contract claims. In 2010, on, in September, Brian Wilson sold the 108 Ocean Avenue property to David and Caroline D'Antonio. We don't know what that amount was, or if I do, I forgot to get it. Um, then in 2017, the D'Antonios sold the property in a private transaction and um, again none of these people who lived in that property had problems other than people continuing to trespass on the property ring the doorbell looking for butch and you know being a general nuisance right. and the town of amityville dislikes this story so much they will not let anyone film at the actual property or in the village of Amityville. So the Amityville movie in 1979 was filmed at a property in New Jersey, uh, which I think New Jersey has a long history of standing in for New York, uh, as does Toronto. In Toronto, right. That's what I was thinking, right, exactly. And um, the, the Ryan Reynolds movie was filmed in Illinois and Wisconsin, and a coworker of mine actually... I think the prop the house itself is near where she grew up. And she was, I think, in school when this was going on. I'll have to ask her about that at work tomorrow. Um, so then we go to Ronnie's direct appeal. We're back to the criminal case. And this is going to go pretty quickly because, again, New York does not have the wonderful full opinions with factual summaries 
uh, that most other states produce in direct appeal and state post-conviction litigation. So in order to get those things, I'd have to go to the physical court records, and I don't have the energy, inclination, time, or budget to do so. Um, right. His and at this appeal, point, I mean, I think I think it's been so many lawsuits. I mean, crazy amount of lawsuits around yeah. this story. Yeah. And there are others that I I I read about or heard about in other resources that I could not confirm and so I did not include mm. um, but we'll get to that later um, okay. March 27th 1978 um, DeFeo's conviction and sentence were affirmed without written opinion by the appellate division second department and leave to appeal to the court of appeals was, was denied on May 23rd 1978 DeFeo find, filed a state post-conviction petition in March of 1986 in which he claimed that Dawn shot Ronald Sr., that Louise shot Dawn, Allison, Martin, John Matthew, then shot herself, that he only shot Louise's dead body when he discovered the scene, I guess because he thought Louise had killed everybody. Um and from what I understand, Louise's gunshot wounds were toward the back and side, which would have been impossible with the Marlin rifle. Um, he claimed he was married to Geraldine at the time what? and living with her. Why would that Jersey. be impossible, Lisa? Uh, because the Marlin rifle is a long weapon. Uh -huh. And for her to be able to shoot herself with the barrel at the distance. Uh, right. For which she couldn't pull the trigger. Got it. That she wouldn't have been able to pull she wouldn't be able to get the trigger get to the trigger at the distance from which she was shot um he okay. also claims to have been living with geraldine in new jersey at the time and had yeah. alibi witnesses i think Springer was was one of them and uh claimed that geraldine's brother richard romando was in the house that night and could corroborate everything but he had disappeared um, he filed in 1990 a motion to vacate his sentence pursuant to CPL 44010, claiming William Weber prevented him from presenting to the jury the true facts of what happened, that Weber forced him to present an insanity defense, that Weber told many of his witnesses to falsely testify as to irrational acts by petitioner to support the insanity defense. Weber told one prospective witness who refused to testify as directed by Weber to get lost and that Weber was motivated by a plan to obtain financial rewards from book and movie rights. Um, which I believe actually that Weber's idea for the book and movie rights came after Butch was convicted and sentenced to life in prison and were a way to try and, and maneuver the appeal into a new trial. Um, and then on uh July 24th, 1990, an affidavit by a guy named William Davidge was filed. He claimed to have been a boyfriend of Dawn's. He claims Dawn wanted to leave home and move to Florida to live with him, that Dawn was a drug user and had a bad temper, that Dawn's parents, particularly her father, refused to allow her to leave New York, and that Dawn hated her parents and used Butch. Um, Butch filed an affidavit in support of his 440 claims 
on October 25th, 1990. And I think I meant to go back to them and did not, but it's probably the same thing that's raised in his petition that it was Dawn, um, that Ramondo was there, that he was, he went to go buy drugs. I seem to recall that he claimed that he left the house to go buy drugs. He came back and found everybody dead and Dawn saying, oh, you're not supposed to be here. And then Dawn tried to kill him and he struggled for the gun, threw her on the bed and shot her. Uh, even though she was found under the covers on her stomach like she'd been asleep. Um, then there was an order. He filed a request for DNA testing on uh, March 21st, 1991. Uh, his request to hire a forensic expert for DNA testing in comparison of blood on clothing petitioner was wearing at the time of his arrest, specifically a dungaree jacket. Dungaree is an old-fashioned word for jeans. And blood on clothing found in a storm drain in, in Brooklyn after petitioner's arrest, specifically dungaree trousers, which petitioner admitted were his were his during post-arrest processing with his blood and one of his victims' blood. Um, and he alleged the police beat him up and, and extracted a confession from him. I think that was another one of his post-conviction claims. Right. And that he was abused by the cops. Yeah, that's where the blood came. <laughs> so yeah. silly. Yeah. And that they would find it was his blood and only his blood and not any of victim's blood. Right. Uh, the finding was that the defendant had failed to demonstrate the necessity of such examination. He had also failed to demonstrate the relevancy of any evidence he hopes to produce after the examination of the clothing. The clothing has been held for over 17 years and is not suitable for DNA testing. Defendant would seek to compare his blood and that with that of his deceased sister's blood. He fails to show how a sample of her blood or the blood of other members of his family may now be procured. So his request was denied. And that is a standard of any DNA testing statute. You have to be able to get reference samples to which the blood evidence is going to be compared. It does no good to DNA test blood and not have victim bloods, reference samples from your victim to compare. Hmm. Um, so that's a thing and and this is a, there's also a finding that the evidence is not suitable for DNA testing um, there's another order resulting from a further request for DNA testing in November of 1992 and the finding is that the complaint the claim that the police somehow switched to blue jeans found in the storm drain and the dungaree jacket worn by him um, is rebutted by the record, both garments being put into evidence at the trial. Should DNA testing of both garments determine that they were stained by defendant's blood, this would have no bearing on defendant's claims in this proceeding. If defendant contends that he was wearing both garments at the time of his interrogation and the blood stains were the result of physical force by police, he failed to raise this claim during his pretrial suppression hearing, even though both garments were in evidence. In any event, at the end of the pretrial suppression hearing, I found, as a matter of fact, that no police officer used or threatened the use of physical force upon the defendant at any time during his interrogation. In other words, his sudden claims of abuse by the police had already been refuted at, tri at before trial. So that request was denied. 
Um, and then there was a an order entered on the post-conviction claims in uh, January of 1993 that he was uh, Butch was not forced by William Weber to present an insanity defense. He consented to the use of the defense and cooperated with his attorney in the preparation of the proof in support of that defense, identifying persons who could testify as to his conduct and participating in lengthy psychiatric examinations in connection with the defense. Pardon me. William Weber did not tell Linnea and Roger Nonowitz to testify falsely, nor did he forbid them from testifying as to their knowledge of the defendant and his family. Linnea Nonowitz was employed as a cleaning woman for the DeVeo family for five years prior to the deaths and testified on trial as to the normal family relationships she observed during this period. William Weber did not tell John Carswell and Charles Tewksbury to testify falsely and forbid them from giving truthful testimony, nor did William Weber tell Barry Springer to avoid the trial. During the trial, William Weber had no intent or plan to obtain book or movie rights for himself concerning the Fayo murders. After defendant's conviction, he became involved with others in an unsuccessful venture to publish a book, and the project never came to fruition. Um, and I think this is the um allegation about Weber being exposed on the stand at a, a hearing. In reality, this is what Weber testified to, and he was not exposed as lying. Uh, the second department appellate division denied Butch's motion to appeal uh, on June 28, 1993. And the motion for re-argument re was denied on September 24th, 1993. And then in 1993, uh, an opinion in DeFeo versus DeFeo, a divorce, a divorce from Geraldine was issued on a motion to renew. Hmm. Um, and then federal habeas, DeFeo went pro se. He was in the Eastern District of New York in U.S. District Court. Um, he filed an initial petition on December 1st, 1975, even prior to sensing, which was dismissed for failure to exhaust state court remedies because he hadn't filed state post-conviction. He filed a second petition on in August of 1982, claiming denial of his Sixth Amendment right to counsel and denial of his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination based on alleged failure of the police to read him as Miranda warnings. Uh, a memorandum in order was entered on May 16, 1984, denying the second petition on the merits. Um, then on October 19, 1984, the Second Circuit Court of Appeal affirmed that decision. He filed a third petition for writ of habeas corpus in 1993, uh, claiming an ineffective assistance of trial counsel because he was forced to go along with an insanity defense by Weber, that Weber prevented persons from testifying on his behalf, and that Weber perjured himself at the evidentiary hearing on the 440.10 motion by denying he had an outside interest in the outcome of the trial. He also alleged the improper denial of his 440.10 motion, requesting DNA testing because the blood stains on the clothing he was wearing when he was arrested were his and not one of his victims and that they resulted from police 
brutality at the time of his arrest, that the state court failed to address whether the clothing from one of the victims would have shown that more than one person committed the crime, and the state court refused to hear testimony of a witness who would have substantiated his claim of police brutality at the time of arrest and the alleged switch of clothing he was wearing with the clothing recovered from the Brooklyn storm drain. He also alleged prosecutorial misconduct based on the prosecutor's alleged offer of false evidence at trial concerning clothing that had what appeared to be blood on them. The prosecutor knowingly and willfully allowing witnesses to give false and fabricated testimony at the 440 motion hearing. The prosecutor intentionally attempting to mislead the court into believing the items of clothing were lost or destroyed at the hearing on the 440.10 motion and that his sentence was excessive, cruel, and unusual punishment because the sentences were ordered to be served consecutively to each other rather than concurrently. Um, DeFeo versus DeFeo, um, a motion to dismiss filed by Geraldine was granted, um, and Bush's petition for, um, I think it was alleging libel and slander, um, in the night that DeFeo died, the DeFeos died, that was dismissed basically because he failed to plead the particular words complained of. Um, so there was a technical defect. And then on uh, September 21st, 1999, Butch appeared for a parole hearing. It may have been the first hearing after he'd served 25 years on the first sentence and that may have been because of New York law not really recognizing consecutive sentencing the way a lot of states handle it uh, or it may have just been that he um, you know that they don't recognize consecutive sentencing and so he was eligible to uh, appear and try for parole. Uh, at that hearing, he claimed he didn't know what had happened, that he loved his family, that he was on drugs and had a drug habit. He continued to tell the story about fighting with Dawn over the rifle, losing his temper, and throwing Dawn on the bed and shooting her. He claimed he took no part in the murders. He claimed other people were in the house. He claimed the DNA, DA and ME said it was impossible for one person to commit the murders. He claimed that he used LSD, heroin, and mescaline. He claimed this was the first violent act in his whole life, but he had displayed violence toward his siblings and friends, so that's a lie. Right. Um, it's the first act, violent act except for all those other violent yeah. acts that he doesn't want you to know about. <laughs> and they don't count because he never got arrested and convicted of them. Um, right. Uh, that's a that's a page out of the Rodney Reed book. Exactly. Um, the people in the house were his friends. He was in the basement, heard a noise. He didn't think it was a gunshot. He didn't know what the sound was. He went upstairs and saw Allison in a lot of blood. He couldn't tell what had happened to Allison. Dawn said, oh my God, Butch, you're not supposed to be here. That she grabbed the rifle and that's when Butch's altercation, altercation with her started. Then he shot her. It was impossible for one person to do this. Butch went to the rooms later on and found everyone dead. 
He said there were serious problems in the house. There were serious family problems. Butch and Don wanted to get out of the house. Don was using drugs. Their father was abusive. He and Don were like dogs on leashes. Butch and Don were like dogs on leashes. And we're all it's almost that. like Don is his is is his alter ego when he wants to talk about himself. Yeah. Don their, was um, using drugs. <laughs> their mother tried, but no one could control his father. Butch says he ran away his whole life. He admits the rifle belonged to him. Their father was different when he drank and drank and used prescription drugs. Their father was like Jekyll and Hyde. Father's doctors had him on diet pills. Everybody was afraid of their father. Butch learn, has learned to stay away from drugs and alcohol. He says he would not have picked up the gun if he could do things over. Um, I think Butch projects his bad behavior onto others. So mm -hmm. he uses drugs. He steals. So so does Dawn. And so does his father. Right. And isn't that interesting that he's using that diet pill? Yeah. Defense, yes. which was diet pills came up in the McDonald, McDonald, yes. uh, Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, who murdered his whole family. It was a fatal vision, a huge book, a huge made for TV movie. Couldn't miss that case. And it's been going on still to this day. Mm -hmm. I hear he's very sick. Jeffrey McDonald yeah, in prison. He's, he's very sick, and he's, but somehow he won't kick off. off. Yeah, I know. It's been going on for years. Excuse my insensitivity, but um, I happen yeah, to believe I, he murdered his whole family. So I'm not so sensitive to his feelings he, and his illness, but he I'm tried sorry for to the get people that love him. Release during COVID right. in 2020 because yeah. of all these skin cancer and liver failure and heart right. problems and high blood Still pressure. Going. And three years later, it's a lot like Damien getting out of the you know prison in Arkansas because he, he was dying. And going right. to Memphis and partying on the rooftop all night with Eddie Vedder and and, and uh, his wife. Right. You I know. know. His, bad teeth, his bad teeth and eyesight cured immediately. And That's having, apparently a, the having, cure. To having to learn how to use a fork. I mean, at that party, they had to serve finger food. That's right. Eddie that Vedder had to teach him how to use a handle. fork. But apparently he, he, he got to learn how to use the iPhone immediately and immediately it, it switched to pornography immediately yeah. without him knowing, touching anything. So uh, in oh, 1999, uh, Butch's uh, parole was denied. He was on hold for 24 months till September of 2001. And basically the finding was your instant offense involved the murder of your parents and four siblings through use of a rifle. It shows a total disregard for human life. You've gained little insight into your violent antisocial behavior while incarcerated. Discretionary release at this time is incompatible with the safety and welfare of society. Um, the Supreme Court of New York State Appellate Division, Second Department, um, issued an opinion on the appeal of the 44010 um 440.30 motions uh, after review of the record agrees with defendants assigned counsel that there are no non-frivolous issues which could be raised on appeal so counsel's application for leave to withdraw was granted um, on August 18, 2003 the appellate division uh, issued opinion finding that DeFeo had failed to establish that he was denied the effective assistance of counsel 
then in 2008, he appealed, or there was an appeal of also the appellate division on a parole denial, and that was affirmed. We note that decisions regarding participation, oh, now this was in family reunion program. Uh, decisions regarding participations in the family reunion program are heavily discretionary and will be upheld if they have a rational basis. Among the factors to be considered are whether the petitioner has been convicted of heinous or unusual crimes. The denial in the instant case was based upon this factor and is completely rational considering the brutal nature of the crimes committed by petitioner. We find no merit to petitioner's constitutional claims. Conse consequently, the Supreme Court dismissed the petition and the judgment was affirmed without costs. Um, the petition was dismissed on January 24, 2008. In 2019, DeFeo got another 24-month hold after parole was denied. He apparently filed a challenge and um, raised multiple issues. The findings were discretionary release to patrol is not to be granted merely as a reward for good conduct or efficient performance of duties while confined, but after considering there's a reasonable probability that if such inmate is released, he will live and remain at liberty, liberty without violating the law and that his release is not incompatible with the welfare of society and will not so deprecate the seriousness of his crime as to undermine respect for the law. Uh, it cited several things as far as the uh, factors the board is open to consider, including lack of remorse. Um, the credibility of the inmate's explanation is to be, is made by the board. The board may consider the inmate's capacity to tell the truth and how this impacts on the statutory factors. The board may place greater weight on the nature of the crime without the existence of aggregating factors. In this case, impellant murdered six family members, which included four children. So there are aggravating factors because DeFeo was claiming they can't do this. There are no aggravating factors in my case. Um, that the board did not recite the precise statutory language of the executive law in support of its conclusion to deny parole does not undermine that conclusion, that the decision satisfied the criteria set out in the executive law and it was sufficient detailed to an, it was sufficiently detailed to inform the inmate of the reasons for denial of parole. Um, and I'm going to skip over some of the other legal, Findings, because these are both mostly legal findings related to statutory uh, law, and that's pretty much it. But it comes down to um, he was denied par parole because, A, they didn't believe his alternative explanation. Because he kept saying, I'm not really guilty. You need to right. let me and it kept, Right, and it kept changing. I mean, it just kept mm -hmm. changing. I mean, you know, from yeah. from... It's really hard to take the stand and say the devil possessed me or uh right and then you when know, that and, and change work, it to my sister did it with me and, and two guys and one's dead and one's in 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 <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh I'm sorry witness protection program yeah. how convenient for you and it's and you're right they're really like the the Lutz um George Lutz and DeFeo are really like two sides of the same coin mm -hmm. as far as, oh, 
well, what a lot more priests and, and even a rabbi was involved, but yeah. we can't name them oh. because we want to keep them secret. Not that oh. we couldn't prove that they were involved and, and not I, that we that we have no phone records or no anything. But so they they get both get caught in so many yeah. lies and they just go on and they keep at it. And I did not one. include this because it comes from an interview with George that is not otherwise um you know sourced in a magazine or newspaper article george claimed that the troubles that followed them and plagued them for all these years were finally put an end to by an exorcism done not by the vatican but by the anglican church Ugh. In England. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's the that's arch convenient. freaking Bishop of Canterbury himself interceded from what George said. That's, well, it's amazing that anyone believed this at the time, but I, I guess, the, you know, it's very much like the media joins in. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. The, I, I the think media wants ultimate... their their stories read or looked at what has ultimately torpedoed all the stories is the ease of basically checking fact checking because the internet makes this very easy i frankly don't believe that the anglican church has any exorcists on their payroll or you know any... that all, all the cases that we talk about, all those facts are available and the media doesn't. I mean, you're right. It's not controversial and there's because no sort of social movement behind the behind the right, it that props it up. So maybe it right would have of, died without it. But the right of exorcism is referred to as the Roman right. Because it mm. comes from the Catholic Church, not Good the point. Anglican Church. Good point. I don't know that the Anglican Church is that big into demons. Mm -mm. that's the Catholics can only help you when you get possessed. It seems like the Catholics are mm -hmm. the place to go because yeah. it doesn't seem like there's too many other people who deal with exorcism. So, all right. So we're, we're, we're toward the end and we're at the aftermath. Um, Jay Anson died of a heart attack in Palo Alto, California on March 12th, 1980. Kathy Lutz died of chronic, chronic respiratory disease, emphysema, uh, on August 17, 2004, in Scottsdale, Maricopa County, Arizona. George Lee Lutz died of a heart attack in Las Vegas, Nevada, in May on May 8, 2006. Ed Warren died of heart disease or stroke in Monroe, Connecticut, on August 23, 2006. In 2012, 2013, the documentary My Amityville Horror was released in which Daniel Lutz claimed that George and Kathleen's occult experimentation caused the paranormal events at the Amityville house. Okay. He perpetuates the claim that the events were real and not a hoax, but he also portrays George as controlling and implies that he was abused by George and neglected by Kathleen and he claims to have run away at a very young age. He also says that when, like, when George died of a heart attack, it was the best day of his life. 
uh, that he and Jordan wow. often tried to kill each other and uh, had a lot of That's kind of strange considering the DeFeo, you know, Ron DeFeo used to put a mm -hmm. gun to his father's head and threaten to kill him. Well, he implied that George wanted to adopt the kids not because they loved and cared for him or he loved and cared for them, but just because it would be appearances for the that appearance. That's about right. Mm -hmm. You might um, have a point. And uh, that, I mean, he makes a lot of claims. It's, it's my Amityville Horror. It's available on Prime. And it's pretty good. I mean, it goes into, it's very pro-Lutz, pro there was something really going on and anti-hoax, although it does present some of the hoax allegations. Um, but it was pretty good. And then I also, I have them in the wrong order. Uh, Hans Holter died on April 26, 2009 in Manhattan, New York County, New York. He was in his 80s, so it's probably old age. Um, and then on April 18, 2019, Lorraine Warren died in her sleep, probably of old age in Monroe, Connecticut. On March 29, 2020, William Weber died, uh, unknown cause, in Delray Beach, Palm, County, Palm Beach County, Florida. In February 2, 2021, Butch was hospitalized at Albany Medical Center. Um, and he apparently continued using drugs in prison. And if you look at some of the interviews, especially in the 1990s, early 2000s, he became more and more gaunt. Um, he was not in good health. And uh, there was an interview where he listed several medical conditions that he apparently suffered from. But because it's Butch, you kind of wonder. Right. Absent. His medical not records. a reliable narrator, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and on March 12th, 2021, he died of unknown causes in Albany, Albany County, New York. Um, so he served his life sentence and uh he was cremated. Finally, on um in 2023, Amityville, an origin story was released by the MGM network. This is an excellent documentary because it really does present a more comprehensive view of the story of the Amityville horror as well as the murders. And it includes neighbors. And one thing I want to say is I read in several places that the Amityville people were a little shocked by the DeFeo family, because there here's this big Italian family moving in to their very white bread neighborhood. As it turns out, a lot of their neighbors had Italian surnames. And probably like the DeFeos came from the boroughs of New York City to the suburbs of Amityville and other communities on Long Island. Um, and on that part of Long Island, because isn't that part of Long Island close to the city, whereas the Hamptons are more yes central and and yes yes you're correct. further out. Mm -hmm. You're right, correct. So, um, uh, that is uh, it's a very interesting documentary. 
It includes interviews with friends of Dawn and Allison DeFeo, who dispute Butch's claims about Dawn's involvement in the murders, debunk the Red Room claims of the Lutzes. Um, and in the 1970s, the Cromarties did an interview and allowed one of Allison's friends to come in and show the, quote, Red Room as just a storage closet under the stairs in the basement. Um, <laughs> but uh, the women who are now middle-aged are obviously still affected by the tragedy that they experience as teenagers, adolescents, when their friends were murdered by someone they each knew. Um, and they also, they debunk to a degree some of the allegations of abuse. Again, if there was abuse and Butch was the target, I have a suspicion that it was because of Butch's behavior not conforming to societal norms and that what Ronnie was trying, what Ron senior was trying to do was to get Butch to stop being such a bad kid and doing bad things. Mm. And it was in a way that was perceived in that time as acceptable and nobody's business, but yours. Um, right. Whether that's exactly. right or wrong, I don't know. But oh, we um, used to go to base little league games and watch, you know, fathers and their kids struck out. You know, scream at them. Mm -hmm. You know, hit them on the top of the head. Yeah, <laughs> such and a now, different time, right? Those parents go after the coach, right? Because it's <laughs> right, exactly right, exactly. Or Very they go after the, the pitcher on the other team. Because it's his fault. Right. Okay. So, you know, that's that's what we're becoming. You it's it's not okay to discipline your children, but to brutally attack outsiders who you perceive to be at fault, it's okay. Right. I mean, I I watch when I'm on Facebook a lot of times waiting for my Walmart delivery, I go to my <laughs> videos. And I do this on, on Twitter as well. And a lot of videos I see are like kids beating the crap out of somebody who they've been bullied or who says something or, you know, multiple kids, two kids get into a disagreement and multiple kids jump one kid over this disagreement because that's perfectly okay. And they film it. And then they're surprised. Oh, yeah when it becomes exhibit a at their criminal trial. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's a lot and it's, you know, like there's a story I saw the other day about a woman in Arkansas who took her two daughters to fight her boyfriend's girlfriend. Apparently the guy's stepping out on the woman and instead of her beating his ass, she sends her daughters to fight the girl he's cheating on her with. And the girls do that and they get shot in self-defense by the woman that they went there to beat up for their mother. Ugh. You know, and what do these mothers think are going to happen? Yeah. I know. I, Terrible. I, I don't know. I mean, it's crazy. So anyway, 
This documentary also includes interviews with Christopher Quarantino, who dropped the name Lutz when Kathleen died in 2004. Christopher also claims that George's occult experimentation caused the paranormal normal events, and like his brother, he perpetuates the story that events were real and not a hoax. He also paints George as controlling and abusive and implies that he, is in, he and his siblings were neglected so that George and Kathy could promote the story and make money. That I believe. Uh, and it, that and I again, believe. I say, if George didn't make enough money, that's due to his bad business sense. Um, and you got to look at, I think another thing that may have happened was they were in over their heads because this house was outside their budget. Yeah. And his business starts going down. And, you know, this was a family business. His father had died. And so he's taken it over. And if I remember correctly from the book, he had some kind of business in Chicago that totally failed. And that's why he was back in New York. Hmm. Uh, that i can believe so yeah he he the business fails and then they're looking at their first mortgage payment being due and they can't pay it did he ever have any other business after this besides the amityville stuff not not that i could ever find or tell hmm. it was all designed all the trademarks and the copyrights were all designed to make money from the amityville stories so again you know, the business is failing and and one of the one of the reporters who was involved with the Lutz story says, well, it it had only been a month, but they're not bringing in any money. They've got no income. They've got no way to pay any bills. They're not going to have lights. They're not going to have water. They're not going to be able to pay the mortgage. Um, And allegedly somehow they they were able to pay the mortgage. But were they getting help from Kathy's mother? Mm. Were they getting Good help question. from, you know, were they getting help from Weber? Um, I mean, you period? know, it'd be interesting to know if that if the kids were were right at that time that they, they were involved in the occult. They wanted power and money and were trying to get at it and something crazy got loose. I don't I've never seen anything really supernatural like I, that in my life, but I don't know. It could I, be an alternative. Reason- Again, the the nature Sorry. of the nature of the phenomena they describe themselves mm-hmm. leads me to believe it is all invented, that it's right. not Good real. Uh, I was just trying to give give something, you know, it was such a big of, thing. Trying to give a, George a said little is, is if it was a hoax, we would know dates and we would know things because <laughs> we're making it all up. Right, and it's mm-hmm. like that you're saying that shows me why you're so fucking vague right not because you know not because it's real but because you want people to think it's real um right and you know again like money disappears you call the cops and there should be a documented police report you have a you have a film camera why do you not try to document the door flown off the hinges and destroyed? Because, you know, Barbara Cromartie stands in the doorway and is like, this is all the original hardware. This is the original door. It's fine. Nothing happened to it. 
He claims mm-hmm. to have, you know, receipts for repairing, replacing windows, but he never produces them. Hmm. Um, and then again, he refers when he's interviewed and he's asked for specifics, he's like, oh no, I'm waiting to get a publisher to have another book where I will pro- I will publish all of my proof. And that in and of itself to me says, this is not real. Right. And yeah, anytime you know, someone you know won't answer a question with, from, any, with buy my book, I get suspicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've never heard a word from Melissa. Good point. We've seen her walking with the family, but we've never heard from her. And again, when they went on these interview junkets, um, I think they were required to do some of it in connection with the release of the movie in 1979 and into the 1980s. And the kids, the kids were never there. And they said, oh, the kids report still having these things because they're trying to build up for John Jones's book. So, no, I don't believe, I don't believe DeFeo was influenced by anything other than antisocial personality disorder coupled with drug use. Agreed. And probably his father saying, I've had enough of you. I've had enough of what you're doing to this family. I want you gone. Take your shit and go. The thing I find so interesting is that the Menendez brothers had the same defense that their mm-hmm. parents were planning to kill them. That was DeFeo's defense that his pair that the family was that he he killed them all in self-defense because he thought the family was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. And that they were adults living in the house and they were very both very spoiled. Yeah. And if DeFeo had been smarter, he would have had a campaign like the Menendez brothers have now. We were abused and uh and uh, that wasn't considered in our sentencing and we should be let out. Yeah, but that's not that's not going to fly. And that was considered in their sentencing because that was considered by their jury at their trial. And they exactly. still found him guilty. Because it was because if you listen to the whole trial, I'm gun just, to the you know, very sus, very sus. While your right. parents are sitting there watching a movie is extreme. Even in light of longstanding child abuse. Oh, and yeah, and they went out and they reloaded and came back mm-hmm. in. How yeah. how inferior were they when they reloaded? And they set up an alibi and pretended right. to find their parents dead. And they had written a screenplay <laughs> before yeah. this. And he had um, gotten kicked out. I mean, it's just same things. Lyle had gotten kicked out of school. Yeah. And, and, and they had started stealing right before this uh, from another... the neighbor's houses. It's like embarrassing the family. Like yeah. very much the same kind of dynamics and also same kind of dynamics in the Marty Tankliff case. And where problems within the family spoiled, mm-hmm. spoiled, spoiled kids, yeah, son, right, exactly. And very, very another, much the that's same another dynamic. thing. The Menendez case is another one that I think that the parents had finally said, okay, Lyle and Eric, they need to be out on their own. And I think the father was like, hey, being out on my own, I made myself, right. And that's what they need. So he was going to like, I'm not bankrolling y'all anymore. You're out. You're gone. You're done. And kind of unfair to Eric because he was just graduating high school and just turning 18. But he's already as bad as Lyle. 
mm-hmm. with the theft and the and the rich spoiled bastard. So, right, and, and getting married in prison multiple times, or you know, yeah, they, they both had all these romances. I don't know about DeFeo. DeFeo's romances seem always tied in with some kind of scheme. Yeah, but all very, most just, prisoners that get married in prison, it's a scheme. It's either to get out or to get money. Get money or have have someone that they can manipulate yeah. if they're really a yeah. psychopath in in prison. Uh, it's 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 depressing yeah women stay away from 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 prison romances mm-hmm. not a good idea so but uh so that is yeah that's the defeo no i i believe ronnie defeo murdered his family because he wanted the house and the money and everything that there were there was apparently quite a large insurance policy yeah on ron senior and he wanted that and, and in those days, it was much easier to collect on them, you know, uh-huh. is my understanding. Yeah. They and paid he, out. Yeah. He had, uh, and I don't believe that Ron Sr. was involved in any way, shape, or form with the mafia. Um, his uncle was barely involved by that time. He was he was moving away from it um, because he was older. And... Um, then I don't believe the Brigantes were involved. I don't believe that they were even mafia adjacent. There's a lot of talk about them being involved with the Colombo family, but I found nothing corroborating that, nor did that come up during the criminal trial. No. I mean, no. DeFeo's defense wasn't Louis Fellini came in with an accomplice and held a gun to my head while the accomplice shot my whole family with my rifle. Right. You know, there was And he's not young there. enough. DeFeo wasn't young enough at the time that he did this to get a lot of, of the brain oh I mean it wasn't it didn't exist back then, but just thinking in today's terms of that kind of young person, troubled young person, let's forgive him, let's not ruin his whole, you know, sentence him to life no, that in prison. Now if right. that happened yeah. in the nineteen nineties or the two thousands, I bet you right. that exactly. would have been but 23 is a little too old is my point. Yeah. 18, 19 can get away with it. Although they called the Menendez brothers boys and put them in pastel sweaters and that seemed to work mm-hmm. enough. People yeah. still call them, refer to them as boys, you know, yeah. and they were adult men living at home. And I so. don't believe there was any paranormal activity in that house when the DeFeos were there. Oh, it's so disappointing, Lisa. It's so disappointing. Um, and part of that <laughs> is because there's never been any paranormal activity reported by the Cromarties or the O'Neills or Mr. Wilson or the D'Antonios or the current owner. The only problems those people ever reported were with looky-loos who thought they were visiting a haunted house. Uh, uh-huh. So, um, but yeah, it's it's a very sad story. And I mean, it's really hard because Allison and Mark and John Matthew were within my age range. Because I, you know, I would have been between Mark and John Matthew. You know, it was, I took a look, it was, she was, they were married in 51 and Mm -hmm. it was, yeah, they were the way you did the thing chart. Yeah. I was read it. Yeah. April. April 28th, 1951, and Butch was born September 26th, 1951, which is not nine months. 
But you know what I thought of looking at all this stuff is that if Damien Eccles, who's had a much scarier history than DeFeo, if DeFeo had Eccles' charm and ability to lie and and manipulate and and charisma, you know, this might have been a a a, a whole. They might have worked better to get him out. Well, no, because by the time the internet came around, DeFeo would have been older and probably most of the charm and polish would have been off. What benefited Eccles was the internet. Because the West Memphis Three story could be rapidly, widely spread and even the pro West Memphis three could be front and center while they mm. were still barely in prison. They had a way of getting around some of those early innocence fraud campaigns. They had a way of getting around before the internet. I don't know. I just find him. I so I find him. So what I, my point is, he's so transparently. Yeah awful and you just like recoil from him immediately uh that i don't think he's ever any of his stories have ever stuck and he's given a you know his story has gotten out there a lot thanks to the amneville horror yeah books uh, well, and movies I think and franchise he did have i mean osuna buys the dawn story and Osuna believes he didn't get a fair trial and things were manipulated and he at least at least deserved a new trial and Don was a real killer and he looked for Romado and all these other people mm -hmm. that were named. Um, but when he wasn't ultimately successful or refused to pay, that's when DeFeo turned on him. Right. Even though he was right. still telling DeFeo's story. Mm -hmm. And the story right. DeFeo was trying to sell. Um, but no, I think DeFeo, yeah, we're lucky that he wasn't smart and charismatic, um, that he was such a weasel. <laughs> That's a great, um, great word. Well, it's been three he hours, really Lisa. Turned people, he turned done people it. off more than on um, because right. he might have gotten away with the murders had he been smarter and more charismatic. I, um, I yeah I agree that's yeah that's that's my fear but I think again even the it that charisma would have faded after 20 years in prison when the internet could have more widely circulated mm. his story because mm. uh, in the 1970s you were you were dependent upon articles and magazines oh, yeah. and newspapers and oh, the yeah. Mike Douglas ripped show. them out of the newspapers <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you found an article, you'd be like searching around for information. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't until the mid 1990s that the Internet started to really uh, make it more more efficient to create propaganda. Yeah. Scary. And sell yeah. a story. But it, but it's so much right. Your point is that it's so much easier to correct it. But where is our press? Falling down on the mm -hmm. job. 
Well, yeah, the media, the media has decided to adopt the propaganda rather than do the hard work. Yeah. I mean, you know, you and I have seen how many, how many articles come out about Rodney Reed or Richard Glossop that or literally come from defense zero. press releases. Right. Exactly. Word exactly. Just for word. word. Word for word. Unreal. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Any final thoughts since it comes from your neck of the woods? No, just that, you know, even knowing that this is untrue, would I sleep in the Amneville Horror House for a night? Probably not, which is so crazy because I nothing has happened. But do I want to go there and sleep overnight? No, because of the lies. That's how uh -huh. that's how deep this thing goes. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about while we're, you know, talking about the subject is that this is a totally false story. And yet there's still something in me that one that that's still scared of that house i don't even know if i would drive by that house if i didn't have to do you know what well, i'm saying on you see on youtube if you look people still try to access that house i wish Ugh. more people were like you and thinking oh look at the lives lost look at the lives ended and the claims made and i'm not taking any damn chances <laughs> but not so much. And there have been a lot of Amityville mo movies. I did not concern myself with those. If you want to know about all the different Amityville movies that are out there, there are multiple Wikipedia articles, and there's one that lists every single movie with year of release. Uh, look on Prime or your your right. cable or, or or satellite provider. Search Amityville, and you'll have a bunch of titles. And hopefully you'll have free access to all of them and you know, feel free to watch them. I, I watched them. I mean, I saw a lot of them either in the theaters when they came out or on DVD when they came out and appeared at my local blockbuster. Um, but not one of them was very good. <laughs> no, no. No, and it's meant to titillate like, and scare and shock, you know, yeah. uh, that's, that's the, that's the name of the game. Thank so, you so much, Lisa, for having me on. This was thank, fun. Thank you. I, I reached out to Roberta last night, um, because I, I found out Kyle was not going to be available today. And, um, thank you so much for taking your Sunday afternoon, uh, to talk to me and record. I do appreciate it very, very much. You are a very great friend and you've been wonderful support for this podcast. And I do appreciate every bit of it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure, Lisa. So, all right. Thanks thank so you for, for having me on. Oh. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thank you for, sorry. Again, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and guest co-host Roberta Glass. If you like the show and want to know more, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Kyle and I will return in two weeks for episode 14, State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias. On May 18, 2013, Arias was convicted of first-degree murder for the June 4, 2008 murder of Travis Alexander, a former boyfriend. We'll talk about Arias' lies to police her claims at trial of self-defense, 
her 67-day trial and conviction, her 2015 sentencing, direct appeal, and post-conviction claims raised in state court, and the attempt to sue Nancy Grace and Sheriff Joe Arpaio, Arpaio for a violation of her civil rights. Until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Thank you.